Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazy youngsters. Ho, 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 and all that bollocks. And welcome to a very special episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham. And as always, I've got two very special little elves helping me deliver this very special present to you. The first one is my good friend, David Stubbs. Hey up, David. How are we? Hey up, indeed. Not so bad. Not so bad, Are we, are we all festive and waiting for Santa and all that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I fucking I, hate Christmas, I, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I know. It's rubbish, yeah. It's just a big Sunday dinner that thinks it's summit. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I'm afraid to say. My second guest is none other than the man himself, the the one and only <laughs> Taylor Parks. Hey up, Taylor, how are we? Merry Christmas, Al. Peace on Earth. Yeah. Peace on every planet. Never, never mind Earth. Yeah don't, yeah, don't be Earth-centric. Come on. <laughs> so this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to December the 25th, 1973. And of course, it's one of those special episodes which was broadcast on Christmas Day, which was, and still is, a review of the year about to end. Every band or artist that got to number one is here. It's pretty much the winner's circle, isn't it? The Christmas Top of the Popses. Chaps, how important was the Top of the Pops Christmas special to you? Oh, it was absolutely central. I mean, I was 12, uh, sorry, no, 12, 11 when, when um, this this came out. And um, yeah, it mm. was, I mean, you know, you could do that with the turkey, you could do that with the Queen's speech, whatever. You could even possibly do a pinch without presents. Well, as long as you had a Christmas stocking. But, yeah. you know, it was absolutely central to the day, was um, was um, top, Christmas Top of the Pops. Taylor, I mean, obviously you're... Were you even born then, 1973? Uh, yeah, I was uh, one. So one. I don't okay. remember this particular broadcast. But no. yeah, the thing is, to be honest, Christmas Top of the Pops, um, it wasn't a big thing at our house because the timing of it was... I mean, it was after or during Christmas dinner... But yeah, this, too, this is the problem, yeah. But too early for the slump, you know. So most of the time it wasn't actually watching TV at this point. It was a chance to get stuck into your presents and read an annual, uh, play Scalextric. Yeah, actually, I never had Scalextric. I had, um, well, it was like everything else. I had, would ask for something and I'd get the cheap imitation of it. Um, oh. So I asked for Scalextric and I got Jodie Schechter Racing, which wow. um, was... Almost the same, um, but a bit crappier. And instead of being actual Scalextric, it was named after Jodie Schechter, perennial uh, also ran of 1970s <laughs> Formula One. I mean, in fairness, this might actually have been 1979 when he did win the Drivers' Championship. But even yeah. so, it made the thing look fundamentally second rate. Like, 
in the 1970s there were Formula One drivers who were actually famous um, yeah. but this one was named after the lovable South African whose reckless driving caused a 12 car <laughs> pile up at Silverstone um, and who, who, who the Grand Prix Drivers Association actually demanded be banned from the sport <laughs> and of whom of whom Emerson Fittipaldi once said, this madman is a menace to himself and everyone else and does not belong in Formula One. Um, <laughs> I suspect they might have chosen Jody Schechter as a cover for how hard it was to keep the cars on the fucking track yeah. in a stupid game. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, as I've said, Top of the Pops, Christmas, you know, a, a huge deal in my house. Well, it was a huge deal to me anyway. For the simple fact that it was the only chance I got out of a whole year to shove Boy George and Mark Holmond in the face of me nonna. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all well, the families sat round, you know, all the extended families there. Yep. And it's like, all right, nonna, I've had to watch fucking Highway for 50 times a year. Now, <laughs> welcome to my fucking world. Yeah. I mean, you'll you'll see in this episode, actually, there was a definite sense of, like, the gulf between the sort of the pre-rock and roll and the post-rock and roll mm. generation. And the post-rock and roll generation would have included someone like my dad, who was who was about sort of 20 when um, Rock and Round the Clock and all that yeah. stuff broke. But 20 was ancient back then. And so, you know, there was a huge generation gap that extended to my dad. And then, of course, my granddad. You know, that was another matter altogether. We'll talk about him in a bit. Radio So, what was in the news this week? Well, OPEC have just announced that they're doubling the price of crude oil. Uh-oh. Yeah, but, oh dear. 105 people have been killed in an air crash in Morocco. The PLO have just announced that they're going to commit even more acts of terrorism in the new year. It's like kind of like a New Year's resolution. Um, Ismet Inu, the former president of Turkey, has died, and so has Harold B. Lee, the president of the Mormons. Brazil's FA have made another desperate plea for Pele to play in next year's World Cup, but the big news this day is that Santa's been. Of course, absolutely. I love the way you delivered that, actually, that kind of listening to tragedy earlier on. It was sort of like with the cheeriness of a Gordon Honeycomb or something. It was excellent work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not bad, is it? Well, I mean, I always felt sorry for, for people who got killed in disasters on Christmas mm. Day because no one gave a fuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it'd be on for about five minutes on the news. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very comprehensively tuned out. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh, oh and the Queen said mm. summit on telly. Mm. That would be the big fucking story of the day, wouldn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and mm. Santa's been, and you wanted Tin Can Alley, but he's got super shooting gallery or something <laughs> i think there was a, it's almost as well the whole oil crisis i do remember that there was a kind of worry that this would kind of affect the supply of vinyl and that pop music itself might kind of be in short supply very soon thanks to oh, johnny arab those dastardly shakes yeah absolutely on the cover of the enemy this week well there hasn't been one since mid-november because there's been a printer strike and it wouldn't come back until january the 19th so on the cover of Music Star, which was as near as damn it to smash hits as you'll get in 1973, is a picture of the entire Osmond family with a photo of a mystery man dressed as Santa with his back turned. Later on in the magazine, we find out that it's none other than Alvin Stardust. 
I don't know if I want Alvin Stardust coming down my chimney though at night. That'd be fucking terrifying at my age. Well, at that point, we didn't realise... pointing at me. We didn't realise that, you know, he was this kind of very avuncular figure and uh, he was trying no. to sort of like, address our tiny minds to the issue of road safety. Um, yes. All that came later. And I think he was a bit of a Christian as well, wasn't he? So um, He became a Christian later on, yeah, when he started knocking off Lisa yeah. Goddard. Absolutely, but, you know, at the same... You know, so at that, that time, you know, he felt he was Sid Vicious to us at that point. On the cover of Radio Times this week is Morecambe and Wise and the two Ronnies in sacks... And on the cover of TV Times is Sid James as Santa staring at Barbara Windsor's tits. Oh, God. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. The number one single in the US is The Most Beautiful Girl by Charlie Rich. And the number one LP is also Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. So what were we doing on Christmas Day 1973? Taylor, you were rolling about and shitting yourself. Yeah, nothing changes. I I mean, this was... I, <laughs> was this the year I got a doll? A doll? What it actually was, was that I'd seen a TV advert for one of those dolls that cries and, and wets itself. And I was fascinated... Oh, tiny tears. Yeah, I was fascinated by the mechanics of it. Um, right. And it had nothing to do with uh, any sort of maternal instincts or, you know, no. sort of uh, wanting to be a girl or anything. I think my parents might have thought it did, but to their credit, they just went, oh, he wants a doll, get him a doll. But... I got the cheapo no. version that was just a plastic oh, no. doll that didn't cry and didn't wet itself. So it was effectively oh. useless to me. Um, oh, man, that's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, but I was too young to, to for it to be a big issue. David? Oh, I mean, the day would have started at 5.30 and um, yeah. we had, like, the old massive sort of footy, footy stocking, you know, full of like, little you know, various presents and things like that. You know, you had the orange at the bottom that was always up token. You shot yeah. outside and just every single piece of crap under the sort of sun that was just... I mean, it, 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 was, it was actually even better in some ways was getting that stocking, you know, that, that, that first thing than the actual big presents were in some ways. Yeah. Um, 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 just, just utter rubbish. Real sort of sub pound land. It would have been twelve ten pence land or one pence land, probably. <laughs> Bob land. But, yeah, exactly. Um, just so stocking full of absolute crap, you know. And bacon and fried bread, I think, for early early breakfast to sort of tide us over. Mm. Church and God, you know, Catholics and all that kind of thing. But oh, um, did you have to go to church? Yeah, but fortunately, I had Father McSweeney, and it was always great when you got Father McSweeney because he could sometimes deliver the whole thing in like under nineteen minutes. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever read that um, story. P.G. Woodhouse, the great sermon handicap in which they all bet on who delivers the longest sermon. Well, he would have like not been in the running at all. He was just absolutely crisp <laughs> to the point and we could be out of there sometimes before 10.30, you know, and it was just um, excellent stuff, unfortunately. You know. So, um, yeah, got out of church early, got back. A bit like telling you, you know, the annuals and stuff like that, the Beano, the Dandy. God, I don't know why yes. I cherish the Dandy with all these kind of ancient jokes about yeah. they always had a you know they always had a policeman called Constable Adelpate and apparently that was meant to be really funny because <laughs> in the year about 1908 yes. you know that Adelpate <laughs> meant something and uh, yeah. you know they, you know obviously written by kind of elderly geezers who's who were basically yeah. harking back to their childhoods of the um, 1920s or whatever and uh, right, yeah. I, bet, I bet Corky the cat got up to some right larks didn't he oh yeah absolutely yeah 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 with a yes. fish oh yeah or, or or a pie left on a shelf yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was always desperate, Dan, but it, it was just, it, I mean, the Beano's, it was just, it just felt riotously funny, you know, compared yes. to the, the dandy. So obviously, yeah, yeah I piled through all, all of the annuals and what have you. Monopoly, of course, you know, and then, yeah. a, you know, a rousing seven-hour game of Monopoly uh, with all the family, which um, <laughs> utterly riveting. Um, and then, obviously, you know, punctuated by what everyone absolutely was on telly. 
I'm yeah. still trying to picture Father McSweeney. Did he? Uh, <laughs> he put his hand on your head and said, "You bastard! <laughs> <laughs> Get your trousers yeah. on. You're saved." Yes. <laughs> it was great. So we're three Stubbs boys. There was like, um, if we'd have been at public school, I would have been Stubbs major, the eldest, <laughs> and it was Nick, my brother, Stubbs minor, and Tony, the youngest, Stubbs minimus. <laughs> and um, basically, I got a chopper. All well and good. Yes. And my brother had been, yeah, my brother Stubbs minor, Nick. He'd been hankering for a chipper. So what my dad did in that kind of slightly cruelly sort of pranksterish way, he took Nick's crappy old bike, this kind of sort of sorry little sort of six-year-old yellow rusting type thing, and he just sort of like sellotaped around um, with some sort of, you know, with, or put some yellow tape around certain parts of it and then just sort of felt tip the word chipper up the side and then put a little <laughs> oh, bit of tinsel on it and said, there's your chipper, Nick, there's your chipper. And, um, did he fall you know, for and it? Poor Nick, oh, oh, he was just gulping, you know, he was gulping back. He absolutely fell for it. And then obviously after five minutes of him just sort of sobbing and uh, walking up mucus and what have you. And you felt really sorry for him, didn't you, David? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And then, he, you know, my dad pulled out the, the, the real chipper, you know, the, the spanking new chipper from you know behind the curtain and gave it to Nick. Said, Don't worry, son, there's your chipper. And then, and then he said to my youngest... T- but, I, was, th- I was right about that seat, though. I know, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, but then, you know, after having done that, and then he, said, he turned to Tony and said, here's your new bike, and he gave him the crappy old chipper thing that he just said. <laughs> Tony has never forgot that, and I think it's sort of driven him to this day. Is that oh, he actually did that for real? Yeah, he did. Yeah, that was his present. Yeah, it was. Yeah, oh man, that's fucking harsh. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was Yorkshire, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, it's, it's almost biffer baconish actually, in terms of the cruelty. <laughs> what he fucking hit him over the head with a bike. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't write no. Tony is a cunt on the side of or anything like that. No. <laughs> They might as well have done, you know. I was five. And so I think this is the year that I got a cowboy outfit with with some guns. Um, I got an action man with uh, one of mm. them tanks oh, yeah. that um, you, you put it in and it, mm. the scale was all fucked up. So he'd actually be <laughs> sitting in the turret uh, with his arms dragging along the floor as you pushed him along. Oh. Which I never, which I never, I, I, I never worked out. Mm. You know how that worked. Um, I think I got um, Escalado, or we might no, actually we might have already had Escalado. You know the horse racing thing that <laughs> yeah. you uh, you clamp yeah. to a table and then you turn a handle and then you, the table gets scratched up and your mum hits you. <laughs> and of course, on Christmas we always used to go over to me nonos, uh, which was great because they had a colour telly. And uh, so yeah. And the, um, I mean, the problem with problem with top of the pops. Uh, I mean, this one's at uh, quarter past two, uh, so the big worry was that we wouldn't finish Christmas dinner before it started because Christmas dinner at our house always depended on what time me dad and me grandpa uh, got out of the pub because <laughs> it, it was it was traditional <laughs> traditional Christmas was uh, all the blokes fuck off to the pub, uh, all the women are in the kitchen. And all the kids are just rolling about on the floor, going, "Oh my god, it's fucking Christmas!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure we ever prioritised like that. I don't. I really can hardly remember watching these because it was always, like I say, it's before the slump when you crashed from all the sugar and yeah. fell asleep in front of the man with a golden gun. It was, uh, yeah, I, I'm too busy setting up the track of Jody Schechter racing, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> 
But yeah, this this year I'd have uh, yeah I'd have got a rattle or something, and don't really remember it, which is a shame because of course this was a, an austerity Christmas. This was a yeah. harder Christmas than we have known since the war. Yeah, um, and it's a it's one of the nice things about watching this uh, top of the pops, the sheer. Uh, determination to uh, be as shiny as possible yes, in the face of this. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a country where, where this year they switched on the lights on the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree, and then had to switch them straight back off again <laughs> to, to save power, um, which must have been the <laughs> such a beautiful moment. <laughs> this is when the the Christmas uh, Christmas issue of the Spectator. 1973 speculated on the realistic possibility of a military coup. That's right, yeah. Um, <laughs> With all these generals in little tanks and the fucking knuckles dragging on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go around Huey Green's house. But yeah, yes. this is, I mean, the living standards in Britain at this point were closer to East Germany than West Germany. And uh, yes. yeah, the oil crisis had just debagged the 60s but it was still a country that hadn't yet been defeated in the mind uh, mm. which we can see from this it, I mean it was horrible and it was brilliant and sometimes you couldn't separate one from the other but this top of the pops that that we're about to discuss is packed with 1973 right this could only be more yeah. 1973 if the lights went out halfway through this is <laughs> yes. you know what I mean it tastes of double diamond and and dry rot but you can <laughs> what you can see all the way through this is the the that particular kind of unsafe freedom uh and weird raw creativity of the time i love 1973 i think it was the most 70s year of the 70s um mm. and only a shame that i was rolling around in a fucking nappy and missed it so, what else was on telly today? Oh, fucking hell, how long have you got? BBC One has started the day with a documentary about Canadian wildlife, followed by a cartoon version of Oscar Wilde's The Selfish Giant. Then it's Family Communion from Wimborne Minster in Dorset. Then Harry Seacombe makes an appeal on behalf of the National Council for One Parent Families. <laughs> At half past 11, it's two full hours of a stocking full of stars presented by Michael Aspel and featuring members of Blue Peter, Roy Castle, The Goodies, The Osmonds, Vision On and, in their words, Top Soccer Stars. And then, just before Top of the Pops, it's a Christmas black and white minstrel show. Oh, oh great. <laughs> yes. It's just what you want, isn't it? Hmm. BBC Two has kicked off with Play School, followed by To Earth From Heaven, Reflections for Christmas Morning by the Bishop of Gloucester. Then they pile into the film White Christmas, followed by a documentary about the annual horse race at the Palio in Italy, and a cartoon version of A Christmas Carol featuring Alistair Sim and Michael Redgrave. And then it's a Christmas What's My Line with David Jacobs, Kenneth Williams, William Franklin and Nanette Newman. ITV have commenced broadcasting with Rainbow, followed by Leslie Crowther presenting a merry morning from the Airedale General Hospital in Keithley, then a Christmas morning service from the Roman Catholic Chapel in Harrogate. See, David, you could have stopped in and watched that. Mm -hmm. The film Lad, a Dog, which was Lassie with a Cock, basically. <laughs> 
Ed Stupot Stewart acting as ringmaster in Chipperfield's Christmas Circus and have run the glories of Christmas against Top of the Pops, featuring Patrick Cargill, Diana Coupland, Les Dawson, Arthur English, Pat Phoenix, Melvin Hayes, Bob Munkas, Gordon Honeycomb, Patrick Troughton and Fred Truman portraying assorted Dickens characters, finishing off with the Nativity read by Princess Grace of Monaco. Fucking hell, they're dragging the big guns out this day, aren't they? That sounds like a light entertainment version of the wild geese. (laughs) All right then, Pop Craig's youngsters, it's time to stop fannying about because it's that time again. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. The show opens with the bottom half of the screen covered by a festive cartoon of the Top of the Pops logo covered in snow with a monkey and an elephant in winter woolies singing from hymn sheets, a parrot walking about in the snow and the words Merry Christmas and the top half consisting of the kids getting down. Oh, they pushed the boat out already, aren't they, on this one? Yeah, also, <laughs> you say kids, but the the bit yeah. of the audience, you see, they looks a little bit too old. Do you know what I mean? They're, yeah, a, they do. It's a bit weird. And they're dancing in front of a silver foil ash tree, um, which is just wrong. Um, yes. Yeah, it's it's it looks a bit chilly in there, you know. It's, uh, it's really getting into the 1973 mood mm, already. Mm. They do have that look that you always get with Top of the Pops audiences. They look very subdued and resentful, yeah. and like they've been busting against their will. Yeah, but this time they've been given some decent tinfoil hats, haven't they? Like tinfoil top hats. Mm. Like, I don't know, an episode mm. of Space 1999 set at the Epsom Derby. <coughs> So your hosts for this very special episode are Tony Blackburn and Noel Edmonds. Tony, in a black, white and red tank top over a spotty brown and beige shirt, looking like he's been dressed by his mum, was relegated from the breakfast show slot to the 9-12 to slot in July of this year, while Edmonds, in a relatively tasteful for 1973 flowery fawn shirt, brandishing a branch of something that isn't holly, but he claims that it is, moved up from the weekend morning slot into Blackburn's chair. Oh, that's not right. Can you actually imagine these two together for real on Christmas Day? Bitter and pregnant pauses. It's a bit bit tense, isn't it? Yeah, I've got a horrible feeling that Tony would get the Clive Anderson treatment off Edmunds (laughs) and his head would be thrown off a balcony at some point. Edmonds being to Blackburn's professional life what Richard O'Sullivan was to his personal life. <laughs> uh, you have to feel for him a bit. Yeah. I can imagine Edmonds stomping out at one point to go and have a ride in his helicopter just to, uh, <laughs> uh, just to think about things and ruminate. They, the thing is, also, when they're standing next to each other, normally when you see Tony Blackburn with that horrible smile and stuff and that weird haircut... Um, he looks really weird and unpleasant, but when you put him next to Edmunds, mm. he looks like a just a normal, nice fella, you know. Yeah, it's like Edmunds standing there with his, with that haircut like a walnut whip. <laughs> you know, basically, if you could, if you could only saw off the top of his head, so his brain was poking out, exposed to the air, then from the back, he'd look just like a walnut whip. <laughs> I just what I do kind of resent now, certainly, is that. 
You think, I mean, it's, whatever they're talking about, the banter, you know, holding up a branch and saying, oh, I'm branching out. I mean, it's it's like, um, maybe they worked all this out beforehand, but I doubt it. I think yes. they're obviously arrogant enough to think that, like, that the stars that they were, that kind of the verbal stardust that would emanate from them, you know, that they could just do it off, off the top of their heads and it would just be great. They could just wing it because it would naturally be spontaneously... Um, superb and it's just this wretched i mean banter isn't even an appropriate word it's some sort of vaporous subspecies of banter it's just awful uh, but no. of course they're right at the time i didn't mind and i mean the world was kind of made for me in 1973 every kid like me everything the world was absolutely great i wasn't remotely disaffected i was a, a very unalienated kid and because i just you know stuff like this was served up something i thought was absolutely great and i didn't mind at all that um you know they were just there to signify christmas top of the pops you know i wasn't sort of sitting back like some sort of glaswegian audience you know saying okay then entertain me um they were right they could get away with it um because people like me lapped it up yeah i i don't think my nonna and grandpa would have uh would have got much humor from this to be honest i mean that uh my nonna was more of a pete murray kind of woman and uh she'd just see two sort of lads with chip pan haircuts as she called them um shoving branches up each other's arses <laughs> not a good start for them and i can yeah. already see her pulling on a fag and, and disapproving mm. which which made it even more entertaining for me obviously <laughs> yeah it's a lovely scene isn't it it's very uh very redolent of 1973 you've got a bloke in a in this orange and green cardboard top hat uh, with a face shaped like a dagger yes and then there's this blonde girl on the left who had she lived in Paris or Rome at this time, would have been fabulously glamorous. But because she's in London, 1973, she has to wear a, a bad yellow blouse and a slightly clumpy haircut <laughs> and misses out. That was, that was the thing. That was always what informed the British experience in those days, this sense of missing out slightly, you know what I mean? It's like we making do. <laughs> so Blackburn holds up a multicoloured origami star and says that he took it from the door of Edmunds's dressing room. Do you think that was? A, do you think there was a little mm. barb in that comment? Mm. Yes, undoubtedly. Yeah, and and Edmunds mm. almost blanks him as well. He just kind of goes, "Oh yes, the yes. star." Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. If yes. you look at the way their eye contacts going backwards and forwards all through. The, well, through the whole show, but particularly this exchange. It's quite awkward. I think Tony is looking at Noel a bit more than Noel is looking at Tony. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of cringing all the way through it. Maybe they didn't prepare anything because they refused to speak to each other outside of the confines of the programme, you see. Maybe that's it. But, uh... Finally, they introduce Come On, Feel the Noise by Slade. We've already discussed Slade in chart musics 8, 9 and 16, so we'll just say that this is her first single release in 1973 and the follow-up to Goodbye to Jane, which got to number 2 in December of 1972. On its release in March of this year, it went straight in at number 1, the first single to do that since Get Back by the Beatles in 1969. Slade, pretty much they had... They pretty much had 1973 by the throat, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, didn't Squeeze Me? That did the same thing. No one remembers Squeeze it Me did, anymore. did, yes. But that must have been 1973, surely. 
Yes, yeah. yes, it was. I suppose yeah. you couldn't have three Slade, you know. Yeah. So, what did Slade mean to you, David? I absolutely, I, I, I loved them, um, and I've still got an immense fondness for them. Um, they were probably my favourite group. Was Slade? I think one thing that occurs to me now is we were talking the other day about Randy Crawford's voice, but you know, you you've have. got to put Noddy up there. Um, I mean, there's a, I mean, especially on this one, it's a voice like an absolute. Lathe. I mean, I like to be able to think I can sort of imitate people a little bit, but I can't get anywhere near no. what he does there. I mean, it just seems, you know, unconquerably, unconquerable. Um, especially, you know, the, the, the pitch of his voice and that sheer sort of raucous pebble dash sound that he gets is it's, it's, it's unique. It's one of the great voices in... Um, I mean, I suppose it's not exactly subtle, but it, it goes to a place that... I mean, nobody else does. Wasn't there a story that while they were recording this, I think it was this one, um, John Lennon was in the studio. Um, mm. It's one of these one of these singles that they recorded in New York, anyway. Uh, At the record Lenn- plant. Yeah, John Lennon was passing and uh, got on the mic and said, uh, this is great, the singer sounds like me, as mm. he was leaving yeah. the studio. Mm. Yeah, you can hear a lot of John Lennon in, uh, in Noddy Older, I think. No, but yeah, but I think Noddy goes further, has to be said. Yes, I like that. Yeah. Slade on a set that looks like they've drained Evil Knievel's swimming pool, festooned as it is with red, silver, blue and white tiles, launched into their first number one of the year. And, you know, we've got to come to it at some point. What's Dave Hill wearing this time? Yeah, or like a, a, it's like a chicken angel, right? Chicken it's like angel, it's what, yes. What, whatever mm. chickens have instead of angels. It is, yes, it's hard to say, really. I mean, because um, I... At the time, I I I would have dressed like that in a trice. Yeah, I mean, amongst your peers at school, David, did you detect any note of effeminacy amongst Slade? Well, they are, yeah, but it's that classic sort of bricky glam thing, isn't it? There was this sort of weird sort of mix of like it was it was all the Adrian Street type sort of thing, where it's it's adopting kind of gayness and effeteness as if to sort of show how super are they? Oh, we're so fucking yeah. hard. We're dressed like this, and what are you fucking going to do about it? You'll fucking get a fucking smack in the mouth if you do. It'll fucking brave if you start going on about those being fucking puffs like. You know, there's that, there was a, that kind of thing, you know, mwah. Um, on the end of it, um, yeah, it was, it was really hard. It, it wasn't really like the 80s. It was it, um, where, you know, clearly, you know, there was about, you know, like it was about sort of gayness in, in, you know, in, the, in the real sort of sense. It wasn't really, it was just. It was just like to piss off the granddads, basically. Yeah. And did it work? Oh, it absolutely worked. Yeah, with my granddad, it did. I mean, um, you know, he'd just, he'd just be fulminating when you kind of watch any of these things. He'd watch and he'd look at, like, Dave Hill, and it was always the same. Seven days jankers they'd have got in my day. Seven days jankers. So did you did you watch this with your granddad? Can you remember who you were watching? Well, he would, he would, he would, of course he would, yeah. I mean, it was great just sit watching just his sort of blood pressure rising, <laughs> you know, as he's kind of having to sit and endure all this stuff in the kind of the bigger easy chair. Yeah. And it's item item item, and, you know, and I think you kind of... And the thing is, I think you kind of enjoyed it, really. You could easily have sort of gone down the pub or, or, or left the room, but no, and it was Not always the same. Day, I think he just, couldn't, mate. He was locked in. No, that's well, yeah. I mean, you know, but I just think that he just actually sort of secretly very much enjoyed fantasizing about poor old Dave Hill and all these kind of people and Alvin Starters having to sort of like peel potatoes, oh, you know, on serving the, a stretch of j- jankers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jankers being, I think, like what you know, if you're in the RAF, um, you know, it's it's it was like a little short stretch in jail or some sort. But um, seven days jankers, yeah, in a silvery top hat. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cleaning the toilet with a toothbrush. But there was, but this obviously was a huge thing in the wrestling world at the same time. Mm. Aging Street was, you know, was the most particular one. And it was the, they knew that the thing that most hacked off, uh, you know, men of a certain age was like, um, was that kind of effeminacy. And of course, the other thing as well, the other great thing about it, that wound up people even more was that, you know, if, if you punched yourself up a little bit, girls would like you. But it was all well within the sort of bounds of heterosexuality. Um, yeah. You know, there was no, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really have a concept of homosexuality until 1975 when the world's first gay appeared, which was Quentin Crisp, of course, um, and the naked yes. civil servant. You know, before that, it was just something non existent as far as I was concerned. I mean, I was only 11 and probably as far as a lot of people were concerned. So, this song, is it their best? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, it, it's really up there, yeah. definitely. What's interesting about it is the production is very hard and thin and the vocals sound really distant and all the power comes from the, well, from the sort of unfussy aggression of the actual performance. But it's all driven by the percussion and the bass line, like, uh, like something off side three of the White Album which I suspect is uh, is where it's derived from. Mm. Um, it, it's got that sort of sparse feel to it, which is really unusual for a, a song that's kind of anthemic, you know. And, of course, when Oasis covered it, yeah. they, uh, quotes improved it in the dumbest and most obvious way, which just turn all the guitars up <laughs> and fill in all that space, which changes it from... Uh, it changes it from a speed record with all this detail and space to move around in into a cocaine record. So it's more superficially euphoric, but um, ultimately it's brain rot, you know. And it's that propulsion that you can hear on this record mm. from the rhythm and, and, and the, the bass line that, uh, that white rock sort of lost as it got whiter. Because it all comes from R&B, yeah. you know. Um that's why this sounds better than any attempt to do something like this from the last 20 or 25 years but it's you can't you can't top this it's like anyone who doesn't feel something for Slade is missing the point of what it means to be English yep. I think which is not to say that we should all walk around dressed like chicken angels and tra- <laughs> tramps from the future yes. uh, with sort of haircuts like medieval simpletons it's just it's this refusal to take anything seriously other than the need to experience joy which can only be attained through uh, obliterative derangement and this is the saving grace of our people as well as part of the problem (laughs) (laughs) simultaneously so that but that tradition of irreverence and scabrous disrespect right which is one of the few things that i'm genuinely really proud of proud to be english right um that comes from that place as well whether it's basically good-natured like as with the as with the Slade or, or or madness or early Beatles, you know, or menacing with the as with the Who and the Sex Pistols, or something in between, like packs of kids running running a mock on cross channel ferry. But <laughs> I think now now more than ever, when we're being encouraged to fall back on worshiping the monarchy and trusting the upper classes to run the place, uh, without the civilizing influence of Europe. It's important to recognise this and remember it and respect it and appreciate that this is a cold, hard country with 
fields of potatoes, not vineyards, <laughs> you know. And uh, if, we, if we must be on our own in this world, we have to find the positives in uh, this crude and drunken island. Mm. And, and chief among them is this particular kind of brutal celebration that you see in this clip. I mean, there's no conceivable way that Slade could have been Italian, no, right? <laughs> it's not. It just it no. And if they they could have been German, but they would have looked the same. But they would have meant something completely different. Mm. Mm. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they should be a little you know, Edward Elgar should be disinterred to write a little stirring soundtrack to that uh, that little <laughs> homage there. Taylor, yeah. I think. But um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 Dennis the Menace. It's other boys, it's football hooligans in Slade, and it was just, um, you know, obviously at a certain point, you know, white English rock was getting very kind of polarised, you know, and this is sort of free figuration would have kind of happened with punk in his own way, I suppose, because, you know, people like Pink Floyd and even Led Zeppelin and whatever, you know, had very much entered into this sort of graduated into the sort of realm of albums and would never have, like, um, you know, sort of thought to sort of descend uh, or condescend to appear on top of the pops. And there were a lot of, yeah, kids at a certain age who did, you know, who wanted a rock music that was theirs, you know, that had a kind of a sort of a terrace aspect or whatever, and um, Slade were tailor-made for them. Mm. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to zoom in a bit further on this. Um, in that it's not this isn't just about Britain. This is about the West Midlands. Yes. Right? I think it's it's hard to get Slade on a deepish level, or you know, however deep the level that you could get Slade if you're not familiar with the region, and it's cheery lack of sophistication <laughs> mm. um although oh come on come on don't do crossroads down taylor yeah i know but things wolverhampton is a special case to be honest right because i mean i'm talking about a lack of sophistication i mean wolverhampton compared to wolverhampton the rest of the region might as well be 17th century amsterdam <laughs> you know what i mean or viennese coffee shop before the nazis <laughs> i don't know al i don't being from east but being from east of the imaginary wall mm. erected just past Burton upon Tweed. I don't know if you ever got this, but Wolver even to other West Midlanders, Wolverhampton is, you know, how can I put it? You know how everyone in Europe loved Faulty Towers? Yeah. But in Spain they changed Manuel and made him Portuguese. Well, for West Midlanders, Wolverhampton is our Portuguese Manuel. Mm. <laughs> Right. What the rest of the country thinks about the West Midlands, <laughs> we think of Wolverhampton. Um, let me just break in there, Taylor. In Spain, um, Manuel is either Italian or Mexican. Oh, uh, that's even better. So <laughs> in Spain, Manuel was from Wolverhampton. <laughs> so come on, feel the noise. Stayed at number one for four weeks until it was usurped by the 12th of Never by Donny Osmond. The follow-up, squeeze me, please me, also entered the charts at number one in June of this year and they'd have one more number one single in 1973. Oh, wonder what that was. In 1983, a cover by the American band Quiet Riot went to number five in America, but Slade thought it was cat shit and refused to have anything to do with it or them. When their lead singer Kevin DeBro went on to be a DJ in the 90s, he interviewed the wrestler William Regal, who mentioned that he was a Slade fan as a kid. When DeBro mentioned that he'd made Slade a load of money by covering their songs, Regal pointed out that Slade had made his band even more money, and the interview ended with Regal pulling DeBro over the desk and choking him, knocking his wig off in the process. Oh, I love William Regal. <laughs> 
fantastic. That's Slade there, just just branching out here, just branching out. That was a good one, wasn't it? Branching out. You've gone mad, haven't you? I'll tell you what we're going to have now. Somebody who did so well uh, this year. Donny Osmond singing a number called Young Love. They say for every boy and girl there's just one love in this soul. holding the branch that Edmonds had at the beginning. Do you wonder if he'd actually kind of like had a fight with him about it while uh, while Slade was on? Yeah, it's it, it, it would be it would be lovely to have had a camera sort of you know train on them throughout the. Um... Oh. And of course, what happens in those circumstances is I've seen it when people are doing interviews or something like that. People are just absolutely stony in those um, in, in in those little pauses in between, which of course in TV coverage there are a great many um, until they have yeah. to keep their powder absolutely dry. But yeah, definitely you suspect. But you never know. There's probably, um, as we've sort of suspected, it could well be kind of deep, deep wells of animus between uh, Blackburns. Yeah, I think I think Blackburns gone. You've had my job. Mm. I'm having your branch. Yes, yes, very possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Edmonds has gone off for a cry or something. We can only hope so. Possibly like that, or it's just like I'm going to tell this. You know, he's probably said this is a great comedy prop. I can do some business with this. I don't think you, I don't think you're up to it, Edmonds. Yes. And well, what did he say again? Um, oh, I'm branching out. Yeah. You see, and then, then when Edmonds is thinking, damn, wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. The best thing about this yeah. this intro is that <laughs> you know, in the previous clip, there was that ugly bloke in a top hat. Well, they've now they've found an yeah. even uglier bloke in a top hat <laughs> that Tony's actually yes. talking to. And the first ugly bloke in the top hat is standing behind them, looking really <laughs> cut out. Like he's been sort of aced yeah. out a bit. And uh, the, yeah. also the best bit is when he, he, he says to this bloke, you've gone mad, haven't you? Oh, yes. Still yeah, bashing yes. away at this mental illness motive yeah, yeah, that yes. he always uses as a yeah. substitute for humour. Mm. And the bloke does all the anyone could do in those circumstances and sort of makes a face and looks the other way (laughs) and he introduces a video of young love by donny osmond born in ogden utah in 1957 donny osmond was the younger brother at the time of the osmond brothers a juvenile barbershop quartet who were discovered at disneyland by andy williams in the early 60s and put on his tv show After making his debut on the show at the age of five, he was bolted onto the group and by the beginning of the 70s was pushed as a teeny bop idol to the chagrin of his brothers. By 1972, Donnie was spun off as a solo artist and his first single, Puppy Love, was number one for five weeks in the summer of that year. This song, a cover of the 1956 standard, which was a hit for the Crew Cuts and Tab Hunter, was the follow-up to the 12th of Never and was number one for four weeks in August and September. Before we go into this video, why is he being given cover versions all the time? I don't know. I'm I'm not really, you know, I suppose I'm not one of the world's leading Osmondologists, so I haven't really devoted a lot of um, thought to the matter. But um, I think perhaps it was this issue of, like, familiarity, you know, cover versions, um, you know, represent familiarity and new songs are not familiar. And, uh, you know, just take an old trusted standard and give it that kind of lovely um, Osmond gloss and uh, you're on to a winner. 
Maybe they just rang up all the songwriters they knew, said, do you fancy writing a song for Donny Osmond? And they were like, Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, never live it down. If, what this record sounds like, in fact, is one of those have your lyrics made into a record records, you know, like where you'd send off your some doggerel to a yes. P.O. box and a bit of cash and they get some hack singer to bash it out over a pre-recorded backing track. Um, it's got that weird generic feel to it you know what I mean like, the, like blind man's penis and all that <laughs> it's um I suppose that yeah, so anyone who doesn't know what blind man's penis is is going to be like what the fuck is he talking about <laughs> I mean, look it up it's really good <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange really so Donny Osmond at that point um he would have again it was a sense of sort of tribal warfare and Donny Osmond was you know utterly it was it was like Dennis the Menace and Walter and he was definitely in the kind of Walter the Softy camp along with Bertie Blenkinsop and Jeremy mm. Snodgrass and people like that as far as I was concerned yeah, and, yeah well yeah well, he was Bash Street kids technically but same sort but yeah the same principle um, yeah, very much like that. And he just belonged to that kind of world of girls and mums and old people and you know, and softies generally. Of course, it's a bit alarming when I realised that apparently he, he could do a bit of karate, could Donny Osmond. That, 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 that messed with my mind. Um, in fact, he used to, yeah, he used to occasionally do a little thing where he'd break Didn't tiles it? on stage using That's his karate right, skills. Yes. In his Elvis jumpsuit. So, you know, he did actually kind of scramble my brain a bit. And, of course, also he realised that, um, you know, soft as this music was, and soft it is, there's no doubt about it, um, Osmond Mania, I mean, it's brutal. I mean, you know, and I just, I, I took the Giles cartoons, you know, as as, as being kind of as, as gospel, you know, in which he showed all these kind of like hard-bitten <laughs> police emerging with like black eyes and sort of ties askew and um, from the fray of a kind of, you know, on Osmond's sort of um, airport, airport arrival. Um, and all these like you know screaming screaming girlies or whatever. Were, were, were girls a thing in your world at the time? I mean, in the, in the sense that did did you go to a mixed school? Yes, I did. I was I'd have been at junior school at this point. And um, oh right, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Was, so were, were, were the girls at that school into the Osmonds? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it was all you know. But there were the girls and one or two soft boys and um, who joined in the girls' games and uh, very much. Uh, so who who was more popular at the time then, Donny Osmond or David Cassidy? I think it was probably about equal, really. Dishy David Cassidy. Um, um, it was. I'd say it was pretty equally divided. And I don't think there was any sort of sense of like the Cassidyites and mm. the you know and the Os- you know and the Osmondians or anything like that. Um, Osmonoids. I would. Mm. I would say. Yes, Osmonoids, indeed. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like if you're into Slay, you're probably also into Sweet. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a sort of City United thing going on. Donny is next to a massive stone fireplace in a brown shirt with letters on it as he smiles a lot and wanders around a dead plush living room with all fake snow on the windows and a Christmas tree because Mormons actually do do Christmas. You know, they, 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 they won't have booze or fags or anything like that, but they love satsumas and, <laughs> and, uh, and after eight mints. It's a lonely Christmas for Donny, though, isn't it? It's it like is, this isn't it? Video, he's spinning around in this empty room, singing to himself at Christmas. I can sympathise. I would, I would have, I could identify with it. I would have liked it better if he'd just had two cards on the mantelpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching this. I was trying to think: is he better or worse than Bieber? Right, like, um, and it's hard to say. On the one hand, Donny's essential dullness and piety at least mean that he never made quite such a tit out of himself and Mm. he did appear on at least one genuinely great record yes Um, on the other hand um, 
Yeah, Bieber gets to work with more talented people and he's paired up with Selena Gomez, whereas Donnie was paired up with someone who looked a bit like Selena Gomez, but it was his own sister. And it's... <laughs> it, Spending that much time with your sister oh. um, just looks fucking weird. It's like those mm-hmm. blokes who try and climb over the wall of Buckingham Palace. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you <laughs> spent a lot of time with his sister. They were very close. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, they, they, that was always a little bit uh, disconcerting. Um, yeah, when they'd sort of stare, you know, they'd sing, yeah, romantic songs, staring lovingly into each other's eyes. And, uh, you know, I thought, this Mormon face a bit lax, isn't it? Um, but... Mm. Uh, it was always confused with Donny Osmond. Of course, didn't he? I mean, there was the Osmonds, and of course, I really liked the Osmonds and in, in, in Crazy Horses and stuff like that. Um, well, I mean, all the Kens must have been really pissed off by now. Yeah, yeah. The, the four Ken Osmonds. Yes. Because they're seeing well, they're seeing the keyboard player being pushed to the front, mm. and then oh, their little sister's come along now, and she's having a career, mm. and then the, that little fucker. Yeah. Um, uh, Osmond Minimus. He's got. He's yeah, yeah, had yeah. a number one record. What about us? I mean, the Osmonds, I mean, they did have, did have, as we said, mm. they did have number two with Let Me In. But, you know, they're, the, the Osmonds as a band are definitely on the wane by 1973. I mean, I'm sure that it was a bit like, you know, the way that like the Jermaines and Tito's and Randy's felt, you know, in, in, in the Jacksons, obviously. It's a, I mean, Randy especially. Yeah. Yeah, but the difference is that, the difference is that Michael was um, by far mm. the most talented one. Whereas, is that really true of Donnie? I mean, it's mm. hard to mm. say, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's hard to know how to mm. gauge that. I mean, this is a fucking mm. crap record. There's no way that you can... It doesn't matter which yeah. way around you hold the picture. This is a terrible record. I mean, I, I the version of this song yeah. that I knew as a kid was by Tab Hunter, who whose name always seemed yeah. hilarious to late 80s acid heads living in a town <laughs> that didn't have much yes. acid in it. Um, <laughs> but th- this is the worst version of it. The way... The way he hits the word devotion on the first chorus, like a young Marvin Hagler. <laughs> it's just, this is not a subtle delivery of this song. And then the sheer insincerity with which he gazes into the camera at the end as he sings the word emotion. It's yeah. amazing. It's like, imagine if, imagine if you had to trust this yeah. bloke for some reason, you know what I mean? I imagine, mm. give it to me straight, mm. Donnie, what's the prognosis? Mm. And you get a performance like that, that'd ruin your Christmas, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like taking a shot of hairspray straight in the mouth, isn't it, this time? <laughs> Talking of annuals, as we were before, I happen to have on there Music Star Annual 1974. Music Star would have been the best music magazine to ever work on because you wrote about all the stars of the early 70s uh, but you just made shit up. You didn't even bother interviewing them. So there's loads of there's <laughs> loads of stories in it. Uh, I mean, on the cover, I mean this will this will be a nice guide as to the pecking order of 1973 in the in the world of young girls because it's all a load of love arts and the two biggest love arts are David Cassidy and Donny Osmond, and then the next biggest are Rod Stewart, then Michael Jackson. Then Brian Connolly and at the bottom is Boer. And it's, <laughs> no. it's packed with gorgeous coloured picks. Picks with an X, of mm. course. Okay, yeah. And so here we have an article called Things I Love and Things That Break My Heart by Donner. So, things I love include the moon, Utah, <laughs> the, the morning, sunshine, you, music, Rainbows, 
Flowers, Music Store, because it's such a great magazine, <laughs> Rain, Wind, Trees, <laughs> Kindness, Rocks, and Joking. <laughs> But you know, mm. let's not let's not you know let's. He's not a two-dimensional character. Things that break my heart: a tear, a bird with a broken wing, <laughs> unkindness, mm. not meeting you. Oh dear! Seeing the countryside ruined by freeways, <laughs> parting, violence. And war, the the heat, the heat death of the universe. <laughs> so you know, I mean, there's a lot going on in Donny's head at the minute. <laughs> and also, another article: Donny make his heart pound by being yourself and always being totally honest with him. By making him a super tie dyed T shirt in his favourite colours. Um, by painting a tiny little flower on your cheek that matches your eyes. Oh. By planning an evening of popcorn, apple cider, and some good talk. Apple cider? Apple cider, yeah. Get pissed, basically. This is the weird thing. This is the, 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 There was this innocent idea in the 1970s that cider was a soft drink. I remember Mickey yeah. out of Lush saying, how did I become, you know, well, you know I started drinking. Well, I was only about 12, 13. I used to go around my friends out. Like, would you like Coca-Cola or would you like cider? She'd say, well, have some cider, please. <laughs> yeah. it was just, people didn't seem to realise it had an alcoholic content. I think American Americans, when they say apple cider, they mean something different. Yeah, yeah I bet they do. Strongbow, do they? Because <laughs> well, Ned Flanders, <laughs> yeah. uh, Ned Flanders drinks it. You know. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. So yeah, Donny's fucking top of the tree at the minute, isn't he? But basically, you know, I mean, both both him and David Castle, they're just conduits for this clearly sort of frightening, raging, nascent sexual energy of yeah. the generation, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. The like of which hadn't been... I mean, he, it's not that it hadn't happened before. I mean, he had Frank Sinatra in his young days and Johnny Ray yeah. and people like that. But um, it didn't feel like it. And I suppose, you know, obviously the Beatles, but um, they'd been a bit of a hiatus, really. And so it, it, it was, you know, it did actually feel just disconcerting. It felt like it was something happening for the first time at the time. It's the first time I've been aware mm. of that sort of thing. So the follow-up to Young Love, a cover of Nat King Cole's When I Fall in Love, was in the charts this week at number four and would be the last top ten hit for Donny as a solo artist until 2004 and Breeze On By. In the summer of 1974, Donny was lumped in with his sister Marie and they'd have four chart hits in the UK over a period of two years. in China as Egg Fu Young. Now, this next young lady showed us her 48th crash. She got... <gasps> in her um, Daytona Demon. She's going to... Can the can? Edmonds makes a really shit joke about the song being called Egg Foo Young in China. Fucking hell. He points out that the next act showed us her 48th crash earlier in the year. Susie Quattro with Can the Can. 
Born Susan Quattrochi in Detroit in 1950, Susie Quattro was the daughter of a part-time jazz musician and played percussion in her dad's band as a kid. At the age of 14, she joined her older sister's band, The Pleasure Seekers, who released a couple of local singles in the late 60s. After receiving two offers, one from Electra, who wanted to turn her into the next Janis Joplin, and one from Mickey Most, she moved to Britain in 1971 and her first solo single, Rolling Stone, got to number one in Portugal. She spent 1972 supporting Thin Lizzy and Slade, and this is her second single, which got to number one, for one week in June of this year. Before we go any further, we've got to go back to that intro. She showed us her 48th crash. Mm, mm. Do you think Edmonds was being a bit surreptitious there? What? what it was some sort of cock- Cockney rhyming slang. Exactly, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You, no, I don't think he did. I have no idea what he was talking about. You know, words were just tumbling randomly from his mouth. Um, I don't even want to think about Noel Edmonds contemplating Susie Quattro's genitals moving swiftly on uh i mean right at the beginning of this song it's got to be pointed out that there's one fat ginger beardo lad in a tank top just about to throw down some moves before noticing the camera rushing towards the stage and he gets the fuck out of the way (laughs) that was great we're seeing a lot of tank tops aren't we in this episode Mm. i'm so glad that it was this one because i i like all our bigots but this is the best one because it's just like all the others but more so um, this is the most direct and the most metallic and uh, unreal and remorseless. It's like you can tell that yeah. the sort of aggression in this record is only make-believe. And with hindsight, it seems completely logical that this sort of black leather hellcat mm. surrounded by these genuinely rough-looking biker blokes would yeah. actually be really nice and smiley and charming and just a really nice woman. Um, but it works even better that way um, because there's that sort of giddiness to it because it's uh, it's like a fantasy record. There's this weird, transported, uh, uh, ecstatic feel which you didn't really get mm. from bona fide early 70s greaser rock, right? It's been buffed and yeah. sharpened up and made into upper music rather than downer music, basically. Um, yes. For which we have to thank Chin and Chapman, uh, not for the first time, as ever knowing when the house needs to be built up from the foundations and when it just needs a coat of paint. Um, yeah. Although Susie Quattro's pre-fame stuff is great, you know, Pleasure Seekers. Um, yeah, it's really good. And not all of it. I mean, they were they were very obviously a, a mm. you know they were formerly a pretty straight sixties dance band, and they'd do sort of you know a bit of Motown type stuff. But there's a few of the tracks where they let loose, where it's like uh, sort of real garage punk stuff, and it's genuinely good. What a way to die is a brilliant record. Um, but this is the perfectly streamlined aerodynamic version of the same feeling, you know. Um, and it's one of the best illustrations of what can happen when you see pop music as a collaborative thing and you don't get embarrassed or uptight by how much your producers can contribute. And you just do your bit with complete conviction. 
Yeah, I would, agree, I, would agree, you know, I would agree with that, definitely. I mean, I think it's a great example of a piece of sort of pop artifice. And I think that, you know, the fact that it is, you know, that it is kind of inauthentic, that it is kind of being sort of crafted and sort of smoothed out, you know, by sort of professional pop experts, as it were, in Shin and Chapman, it, it is, is really what makes it. Um, you know, I mean... But it wouldn't work if it was just that. Yeah. That's the thing. It's the fact that you need this really fiery band. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, you need um, to have the relationship with the original. It. But it's it. It's not a complete thing. But it's it's the it's the it's the mixture of like I suppose the formally authentic and, and the and the artifice in it that. Um, um, and it is just it's like a lot of things. You know, oh. you know, we were talking about now, what does can the can mean? It doesn't really matter. I mean, a lot of. You know, a lot of we see throughout this show in terms of the way that people dress or whatever. I mean, it, it doesn't really isn't rooted in anything. It's just these bizarre sort of creations sort of made up on the spot that uh, that not really got anything much going for them except out, outlandishness. But um, well, I mean, let's but- let's get into the Luke's, David. I mean, I've been sitting there and working it out, and there's it. It has to be one of the most batshit lyrics ever for a number one song. I mean, the verses are, are, are basically saying, okay, your boyfriend's an eagle and your, your mum is a tiger and your sister's a cat and both of them want to get into his nest. So you've got to scratch their eyes out first. Yeah, it's just, it's saying, don't... Right, don't, oh, not finished, <laughs> no. not finished. And the chorus, mm. there's three explanations one of them is put a can in a can which is it sounds like something that yoko ono would mm. write on the back of a fucking john lennon lp it's it's very much like make bread out of toast yeah yeah um, or i always thought put your man in the can meant you know bin him off because he's been mm. shagging your tiger mam or summer or yeah or if you were a, a, an american you you'd probably assume that the lyric put your man in the can is basically saying, you know, give him some bumhole love <laughs> and keep him on side. Could be, yeah. Or, or banish him to the lavatory is another one. Yes. Or there's also, you know, give an emerging krautrock group the sack. I mean, there's all yeah. kinds of uh, yeah. um, possible things. i got to say a lyric uh, that's just telling you to try not to let your boyfriend bang your mum and your sister shows a... a depressing view of human nature <laughs> uh, and also is disappointingly yeah. repressed and conventional <laughs> I think um, but you can't hear any of these lyrics anyway because um, <laughs> there's there's more important things in the mix exactly you know? yeah yeah I didn't listen to the lyrics at all I mean I don't really listen to the lyrics much now to be honest I mean I just see everything as a kind of sort of sculpted noise really and uh um, and all the significances on the surface. Um, I suppose that's always been the way that I've, you know, listened to stuff like that. But yeah, but it does, and you know, I mean, as as, as Taylor says, you know, there is perhaps a slight sadness to the lyric. But then Susie Quattro herself, I don't think was a feminist. I think that she no. was she's one of those kind of tomboyish, tigerish women who doesn't really have much with something. You know, I think she sees it as a kind of weakness, really. And I think she regarded feminists and people like that and campaigns, women's rights as as um, political and therefore sort of rather sheep-like in their tendencies, you know, following a particular line. I think she felt that she was some sort of beyond the feminist because, you know, she was striking out alone and, uh, mm. um, you know, a, a trailblazer or what have you. Um, I mean, this performance, though, it is going to be a non-art confuser, isn't it? Because there's, there's all mm. these blokes oh, yeah. who look like women and then there's, there's a mm. w- woman who looks sort of like a woman, but, would you, you know... Tell, would you tell Len Tucky that he looked like a woman yeah. to his face. <laughs> He's a big fella. He's not also not a man <laughs> you would advise to wear a skin-tight leather outfit. But equally, 
Um, he's not a man you'd openly mock for wearing <laughs> one, which is probably how he got away with it. There was, a, I don't know if you remember, in Tiger and Scorcher at the time, the comic, um, the sort of sports comic, there was a character called Talon of the Track. <laughs> yes. Joe Talent, remember, yeah. Joe Talent, Joe Talent, remember, yeah. yeah. And she was like, she ran this kind of speedway crew. The Ospreys, um, yeah. But, yeah, the Ospreys, yeah. But she herself wasn't allowed to race because she was a woman, you know. So yeah. you had all these kind of geezers who just went out on the track and had to do the business set under her sort of tutelage direction. But occasionally yeah. she would race them and she would beat them. It's just that the yeah. rules didn't allow for her to ride. Um, so, none, you know, so, and I always felt that, like, yeah, that, that Susie Quattro was always the kind of, the, very much the Joe Talon of the um, yeah. 70s glam pop scene. Yeah, she, she wasn't a penny race, was she? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Or a grandma in Billy's no, boots. No, no, absolutely. Grandma Dane. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, no, absolutely not. The other thing that needs to be pointed out is that that keyboard player's got his instrument set far too low. Mm. Yes. There's just, you know, he's probably got a better platform going on as well. And he's just reaching down for the keyboard. And it's just like, oh, God, you, you're really going to fuck your back up in later life, <laughs> There's mate. a problem, though, with those little electric organs, right? That We've talked in the past at some length about the difficulties of performing from behind a keyboard. But it's, like, it's mm. not so bad if you've got a big Hammond organ or something that you can sort of hide behind yeah. and rock backwards and forwards and it's like a, an impressive bit mm. of gear. Whereas those electric organs that you hear on... Uh, a lot of 60s and early 70s records, they sound great and they're really piercing and they've got an exciting sound, but they look like a toy. So if you're on stage in your yeah. biker outfit, prodding at one of those, it's yeah, a, yeah it's a, visually it's a bit feeble. So the follow-up to Can the Can, 48 Crash, got to number three in August and her last single of 1973, Daytona Demon, got to number 14 in November. She started 1974 with her second number one, Devil Gate Drive, in February of that year, and eventually appeared on Happy Days as the Fonda's girlfriend's sister, Leather Tuscadero. Here is a record now that got to number one. I suppose we could call it the surprise hit of 1973. It's called I Level, and here comes the Simon Park Orchestra. Blackburn, without the branch that he won off Edmonds, introduces what he feels was the first surprise number one of the year. Do you think? Do you think Blackburn got it snatched back off him, off Noel, or did you? Do you think the floor manager came over and gave him a stern talking to, and told him to give it back? Almost certainly, yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. So anyway, he hasn't admonished them. Yeah. yeah. So he introduces what he calls the first surprise number one of the year, "I Level" by the Simon Park Orchestra. This, of course, is the theme tune to Van der Valk, the Thames television series about a detective in Amsterdam. It was composed by Jan Stuckart, loosely based upon a German-Dutch nursery rhyme, and was performed by an orchestra led by Simon Park, who was born in Market Harbour in 1946. It was originally released in late 1972 and got to number 41. But when the second series was broadcast this year, it was released again. And this time it got to number one for four weeks in September and October. The B-side is Distant Hills, which Park co-wrote. Anybody know what Distant Hills is? A theme from Crown Court. Oh, you bastard. Yeah, Indeed. Oh, 
Was it that one? Because I assumed... Oh, was it? Yes, it's more likely to be that one, wasn't it? Yeah, the less severe, yes, the ones when... It might have been both of them mashed together, though. Yeah, because they tend to deliver rather dubious, not guilty verdicts in these cases. Yeah. If you remember, anyone doesn't remember Crown Court, it was always a real... It was always a sort of scripted case, but the jury came to a real verdict at the end of each one. And it was the theme tune to being off school sick. Wasn't it? Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unbelievably, they've not gone for the easy option of rebroadcasting a video of the performance. They're here in the studio, and the bar bill for this episode must have been fucking colossal. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. They'll have had a right old jolly up, definitely. Is this live? I doubt it, just because of the difficulties of uh, of micing them mm. up while they're on camera. I don't think it will be. So, Van der Volt, do you remember it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember it very vividly because, you know, the charts, what was number one? It was like it was like the changing of the seasons. It was like the weather. And I think everyone was conscious of what number one, yeah. what was number one at that time. It, it, it was not knowing what not knowing what was number one at that point was like not knowing who was prime minister. Um, mm. It was you know, really in the realms of ignorance if you um, were unconscious of these things. And I think in a sense, you know, at that point, pop, pop music on top of the pops, it was... Um, it did kind of represent a very, very kind of you know broad. Um, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just pop. Pop was just part of it. There was also stuff like this. This is you know there was also this vast audience that was listening to Radio Two and sing something simple and Semprini Serenade and all that kind of stuff. Um, they were very much they were very active as 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 record buyers and mm. clearly you know something like this and you know stuff like this was part of you know the the, the enemy world. You know the old the old folks, yeah. the MOR types, the Radio Twoers, the Vince Hill fans. Yeah. The, um, it was it was it, it was that whole world that um, you know. Still had a sort, you know, still casting a kind of dark pall over popular culture. Mm. The great thing was at this point, and is that the, the deal was back in the seventies that you had the the sublime and the ridiculous. If you count this as ridiculous, it was kind of ridiculous that you know people had actually gone out and bought this, but. Um, there was this wonderful trade-off. I mean, eventually pop got to a point of just all, all that's on is this sort of healthy and efficient sort of mediocrity. Um, you don't get these kind of wonderful St. Winifred, Lieutenant Pigeon type, you know, anomalies yeah. anymore. And you don't get David Bowie doing Starman yeah. either. You know, you don't get these two wonderful extremes. And I think one of the things you see in this episode overall, we've already seen it, are, are the kind of extremes, yeah. really. Um and, and it was kind of better then because there was, it, the, the reason you had the sublime is because more things were tolerated, more things were way through. And um, um, so, you know, the trade-off for the really great stuff was the Silent Park Orchestra now and again. Mm. And also it's got to be said that, you know, music's never been more available than it is now. But you'd hear yeah. so much more music back then simply because, you know, you'd mm. have radios on in your factory. Your factory might have its own radio station. Um, you know, yeah. radio was on everywhere and, you know, the charts were for everyone. Everybody could add a stake in the charts. Mm. And, you know, if a load of people decided at the end of an episode of Van der Volk and it popped up and said, oh, the theme tune's available, mm. a shitload of people mm. would go out and, and buy it because, you know, I mean, the viewing yeah. figures for Tally was, were fucking ridiculous compared to what they are now. I mean, there could have been, yeah. I don't know, 16 million people watching an episode of Van der Volk. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But I remember even at the time having the sort of feeling that people get these days when, like, say, the Brexit vote occurs. In bloody young people, yeah, you've got all the kind of the right ideas, you're progressive forward, but you don't bloody turn up to the polling station. Mm. And this is what I, was, I remember thinking about the sweet thing. I think that, like, sweet fans hadn't been committed enough. Yeah, it was all right, kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, worshipping the glam, all that kind of stuff. But you weren't committed enough to go out to the record shop. And whereas the old folks, wherever, you know, the door, you know, they would yeah. have gone. They, they would have gone down to Woolies reliably, okay? You know, there's the trouble. They may reactionary but they're more reliable yeah all the odins would have gone down to boots or wh smith weren't they yeah in the droves that's right yeah but i mean the tv show do you remember that because i remember it being on simply because i remember it being quite popular because it was set in amsterdam they could get away with a bit more you know they could they could they could do better drugs and prostitution yeah i've tried watching a few because they're all on youtube but it's really it's quite a standard slow 70s detective series which i i generally like but it's yeah. and also the fact that it's set in amsterdam right which appears to have been chosen as a location because it is at least a bit more exotic than rotterdam or utrecht um i mean it's not that picturesque really um the later ones are better because they're done on entirely on location on 16 millimeter film so they've got that dismal cold war feel um but really no one who's ever seen frenzy can take barry foster seriously as a policeman even a dutch policeman but i don't really remember it from the time in fact because i'm too young to remember 1973 really i know this music as the theme from the late 70s advert for alton towers right um which is sort of appropriate because it does capture the feeling of standing in a queue for an hour and a half. <laughs> um, it's not, I mean, unusually for a 70s hit, this really is bad for all the reasons that serious music fans of the time would have given you, right? In that it's designed to be bland and unobtrusive. Yeah. Um, and it masquerades as something close to serious music, or at least classy, you know, where in fact it's pure chintz. Yes, it, it, yes, it's music that requires conducting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's got that air yeah. of... Uh, By someone who looks like a trendy English teacher. Well, he looks he looks like if Richard Stilgo was in The Strokes. <laughs> and also, nowadays, all those musicians would be in black, right? They say, just turn up, just wear black. But because yeah. it's 1973, they're all in mustard roll necks. Yeah. <laughs> like the dad on the box photo of Blow Football or Connect yes. Four. Or, Definitely, or, um, yes. <laughs> think once, think twice, think bike. It's like a mm. 1973 idea of neutral, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can imagine sort of, your dad's saying, no, listen to this, you might learn something. Yeah. yeah. The thing is that this record has that air of smug superiority because whatever else it is, it isn't noisy. Right, mm, there's no yeah. noise of any kind on this record, mm. right? In the sense that the the sound is smooth and airless and entirely without energy, but also mm. it doesn't create any kind of movement in the brain, right? It doesn't ring mm. any bells, it doesn't break anything or or light anything mm. up, it doesn't cause anything yeah. unexpected to happen, right? No noise, nothing extraneous is created. It's just this. It's just what it yeah. is in its corner. But that's understandable because it's actually a bit of library music it's um it was yeah. just written for dewolf to be used as to be used as library music and um yeah it's a dutch tune isn't it pre provo pre cruyff 20th century netherlands um yeah hmm. yeah 
I had a mate who worked for DeWolf once, not writing the music, he just worked in the work for the company. And it was one of the last places in Britain where you could smoke at work. But he used to get <laughs> copies of all these albums where the tracks were called like loud party music or peaceful reflection. <laughs> things like this but every now and again you get something really great and strange like music by people who really knew what they were doing and were able to be inventive um outside respectable forms of music uh but that doesn't really apply to eye level no there's total football and there's total bollocks isn't there yeah by this time i would have uh i'd have got really bored and i would have nip back to the table to see if there's any matchmakers or sausage rolls or whatever yeah, yeah. and yeah my, my, my parents and me uh i mean our own grandpa would be going oh this is that tune off that program what's it called again and they'd be there for fucking yeah yeah at no point do they mention van der Vonk. yeah 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 but um it, it, it list, a record like this it felt like i was being implicitly told <laughs> off when a record like this came on isn't like this is how it should be done you see you can tell the difference between the men and yeah. the women um, because there are no women yeah well if there were any you yeah. could tell there were women they wouldn't be wearing tangerine tank tops unfortunately there were no women up to snuff a no. sophisticated piece of music no. like this i'm afraid Unbelievably, this was the second biggest selling single of 1973 and the first television theme tune to get to number one in the UK. The only other ones are Miami 7 by S Club 7, Suicide is Painless by MASH, Teletubbies and Bob the Builder. Fucking out all the great theme tunes that never got a sniff of the charts. It's upsetting, isn't it? I mean, you can imagine if we lived in a world where the theme tune to the Sweeney and Starsky and Hutch had got to number one. Yeah, Juliet Bravo. Oh, God, can, can, can you just imagine what Pants People and Lexico could have done to them? Yeah. The Simon Park Orchestra never troubled the charts again, but a version of this song with lyrics called And You Smiled was released by Matt Munro, which got to number 28 this month. Uh, Tony said at the beginning of the programme, 73 was a very good year for the Osmonds. And we go right down to the junior end of the family, and Jimmy! This cunt. Born in Canoga Park, California in 1964... Little Jimmy Osmond was the ninth and last Osmond spawn and was the first of them to get a gold record when he had a hit at the age of five in Japan with My Little Darling. His first British single, If Santa Claus Were My Daddy, failed to chart in late 1971, but the follow-up, a cover of an obscure 1969 Christopher Kingsley song, became the Christmas number one of 1972 and stayed there for five weeks, keeping solid gold easy action by T-Rex and the Gene Genie by David Bowie off number one. I think he became quite a nice chap in the end, Jimmy Osmond, didn't he? I think he was a sort of He did, but let's not talk about then, let's talk about the now of 1973 first thing I need to ask is what the fuck is this doing on because it's last year's Christmas number one 
This would be like your mum and dad wrapping up last year's Wizard and Chips annual mm. and giving it to you again. It's got no right to mm. be on here. Yeah, it was number one in January of 1973, but no, it's done. It's mm. time's passed. Absolutely. I mean, it was like, it was number one for weeks and weeks. Yeah. It was about 10 or 12. But it was like the winter of 1947. <clears throat> it was just, it wouldn't fuck off. Yeah. I mean, we used to stand around in our schoolyard, freezing our little knackers off. Just standing around in circles at playground, where we've been just pitchforked out into into the yard, and <laughs> we'd just stand around fantasizing about the various ways in which we'd bray the shit out of little Jimmy Osmond if <laughs> some unlikely contingency ever strolled into our kind of playground. We'd just sort of like, you know, we'd each share our kind of fantasy about how we'd like, you know. Um, inflict these sort of drawn out acts of violence on his person. Was there anyone? The de- was there anyone equally as famous who you'd want to beat up more at that time? Um, well, I mean, I would like to beat up Donny Osmond, but then part of me realised yeah. that he might be a humiliating reversal. Actually, yeah. um, so um, I think you know, best, you know, little Jimmy was more my own size, really. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, yeah. And he was beat upable. I mean, you know, obviously he was, uh, yeah. you know, the word, you know, the clues in the word little. Yeah. Again, there's a sense of like being slightly told off, you know. I mean, why, you know, why can't you be a kind of smart, entertaining little song and dance boy like this, wearing a nice well, jumper? Well, kids never like other kids who are on telly. That's that's just a hard and fast rule, isn't it? No, of course not. It's, yeah. Jimmy Osmond was like the kid on Crackerjack who'd win double or drop like 12 weeks in a row. And you just got sick of seeing him and you were jealous of him and you fucking hated him. It's hard to comment on this record. It's mm, mm. it's almost embarrassing to discuss yeah. it at all. Or certainly to discuss it in the way it demands. Because it's like laughing yeah. at crossroads, isn't it? It's it's like it's the dust of what was once mm. low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's like it's like an easy target that isn't there anymore yeah. because it's been shot to pieces by rookies. <laughs> but Still, mm. when mm. you're confronted mm. with this cross between Davy Jones and Augustus Gloop, um, <laughs> it's you can't help it. It just angers up the blood. It's like he looks like if the mid '60s Brian Wilson had an evil <laughs> miniature <laughs> robot version of himself, <laughs> which he sent out to do murders. It's <laughs> also it's hard to think of anything original to say about it because no. this record's been designed to be what it is, which is a nauseating shit show. It's yeah. not like someone's tried, or it doesn't seem like someone's tried to write a genuinely charming children's song and mm. missed the mark. Mm. It seems like it's this song's been built from the most basic elements of obnoxiousness, right? It's yeah. like somebody thought. It's like somebody thought that on the good ship lollipop was too much like Gimme Shelter. It's it's, it's almost like it's yeah, and he's presented almost as a parody of the of the archetype of the fat, annoying, spoiled American kid. You know, yeah. The only surprise here is that he's not wearing a fucking bow tie and honking a klaxon. (laughs) It's like he's puking up high fructose corn syrup in a mm. in an Arby's. Yeah. Um, I mean this is it. I mean there were great wars going on. And I absolutely agree with Terry. It does sound as though it's been deliberately and maliciously calibrated to raise the hackles of any sort of decent thinking, especially a young person. But this is like the war that was going on between kids and grown ups. And 
it was just, an, you know, that any kid at all should do anything like this was just an act of absolute treachery, basically. It's a quizzling, isn't it? Yeah, he was, absolutely, you know. And then, and then you know, and if it had been, you know, he, he, he would have been shot. Well, he certainly have had the shit kicked out of him, obviously, and, you know, in more sort of if things had gone a certain way. But, um, um, yeah, and it was it was the very fact, again, this sort of reproach them with that there were some certain types of kids or whatever who grown-ups mysteriously admired and thought were wonderful, but who just made, yeah. you know, everyone else just want to pute their ring. Um, you know, other kids or whatever, and and it just felt like yes, he was definitely. I mean, to, you know, letting the side down is is an absolute understatement. But it just it, it, it's 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 like listening to Lord Hawhor or something like that. It's it's <laughs> you know. I am trying to think of positives for this, but I mean, this song is obviously it's he's he's tinier Tim, isn't he? Mm, mm. <laughs> Tiniest Tim, mm, even mm. yeah, Tim Minimus. The saving grace of this actually is how funny this video is oh yes sprung on you in a certain mood like i can't get through the first three seconds of this clip without laughing hysterically Mm. which puts it ahead of many things in life you know Mm. and it's therapeutic to watch little jimmy osmond and yeah to think like the school bully for two and a half minutes which is completely unavoidable and it feels completely harmless and calming to think up terrible ways of ruining his day it's like he's like a a human stress ball like he looks like a human stress ball and and acts as one it's like what's well okay i was gonna say what's he gonna do get his big brother on you but as we've heard it's yeah that might actually be a bit dangerous but then again he had lots of big brothers didn't he i mean they could do some damage on mass at least i bet they uh, fucking hated him even more yeah but if they all came at you at once, you'd be like um, Tim Roth in Jurassic Park, The Lost World. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the greatest bit of this video, of course, is where he appears as Santa mm. at the end. <laughs> as like a tiny little beardless Santa in a sleigh. It's like the idea of this beaming homunculus coming down your fucking chimney <laughs> oh man that's terrifying <laughs> isn't it they're alive it's like he's surely he's anyway he's better suited to going up the chimney like either yes. making himself useful as a as yes. a sweep or yeah. on the end of a pole as a brush where he belongs yes um, or better still as black smoke <laughs> i mean my nonna would have loved this Oh, he's such a nice young lad. He's always got lovely hair. He, what, he combs his hair. He's not like you. And, and I'd just be there just hating, hating the world. You know, this is, this, is, this is like Santa has just shat on my bed on this Christmas day <laughs> and fucking rubbed it in with his arse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I suppose another thing about it, it's like a lot of things, though, in the culture of that, in pop culture at that point, is it's long-haired lover from... It's complete nonsense. It's a bit like, you know, you say, the can, the can. You know, it's nonsense, but arbitrary yeah. nonsense, but it doesn't matter. Like so many yeah. things were in the pop culture at that time. I mean, he's not really long-haired in a serious sense. His balls no. haven't dropped. He's obviously not a lover, and he's certainly not from Liverpool. It's... it's um, okay. Can you imagine just, if you want, can you imagine a yeah. scouse Jimmy Osmond? Yeah. <laughs> also, one of the things he offers to do um, in the I'm Your Man-like lyric is cut his hair. Yeah. Which, I mean, well, that defeats the object, doesn't it? Then you, well, yeah. This relationship's a bit full-on for someone his age, I think. I think what he's saying is he'll be anything that um, he wants him to be, basically. Y- yeah. But we just all want him to be dead, violently <laughs> dead. <laughs> Crying. For some reason, he doesn't offer that as an option. Is there anything, anything else to say? Yes, there is. Who the fuck bought this? 
Who's the target audience for this? Yeah, I'd say your grand, but there's not enough record buying grands to make this number one for that long, is no. it? No. I mean, would it be girls who just wanted a fucking chubby, toothy dollar? <laughs> so the follow up, Tweedledee, <laughs> got to number four in April of this year. That he did a record called that. Oh, yes. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah, oh, Christ. No, yeah. but you just instantly picture the illustrations. Yeah. From, and it's, yeah, it is, isn't it? Hmm. Just thank Christ there wasn't two of it. It, it. It's true. I mean, he really was trying to rub feces in our ear canal at that point, definitely. At, uh... I think at this point we are effectively stamping on the head of an unconscious <laughs> little Jimmy Osmond. We should probably probably <laughs> stop yeah. before it's too late. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's just walk away <laughs> and think about what we've done. <laughs> so the follow-up, Tweedledee, got to number four in April of this year and he'd have one more hit in 1974 with I'm Gonna Knock On Your Door. And he was done as a chart act. He'd go on to appear in fame for a couple of episodes in the early 80s and then became the lead singer of the Osmonds earlier this decade. Fucking hell. And he's still the youngest person ever to have a number one in the UK at the age of nine. So, I mean, this is the low point of the of the show, isn't it? This top of the pop swings back and forth between the ghastly and the divine all the way through but it's about to swing so wildly um that the entire population of britain gets whiplash um so let's <laughs> yes. let's let's leave this cunt in the fireplace and uh and move on I'll be along. Jimmy Osmond, right there. Have you noticed that uh, this year it's been sort of the real year, glitter? The year of the glam occasion. rock, we can beat them, can't we? It has. So we shall try and out glitter all the groups from now on. Definitely. Right, starting off with the Swede, who had a fantastic year. Starting off with this one, Blockbuster! and Blackburn are absolutely encrusted with tinsel looking as if they're being strangled by a glam boa constrictor <laughs> Edmonds points out that 1973 was a year of glam rock while Blackburn announces that him and Edmonds are going to try to out glitter all the groups from here on in mm. yeah mm. but then he introduces Blockbuster by Sweet. We've already discussed Sweet in chart music number six, so we'll just say that this is a follow-up to Wig Wham Bam, which got to number four in October of 1972, and it got to number one for five weeks from January of this year. Hallelujah! Here we go. Yeah. 
this 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 was the absolute stuff um and yeah and it was it was it, it was you you were almost like sort of gasping for cultural air you know in this voice and it is just um this is just rising to the surface you know or something it was you know it, it, it when you're a kid at that age i mean things like this aren't just sort of great records i mean they are absolutely vital you feel like mm. you know you just shrivel away um and die in a sort of perma 1950s if you were into things like this i mean you know you just needed these these sort of eruptions of colour and light and noise just to sustain you, really. At this point, I would have been off my fucking tits <laughs> dancing to this. Yeah. You know, as I've said before, Scott Home Infant School, uh, Thursday dinner time disco, half a <laughs> pee to get in. <laughs> I'd be with the rest of the Rudy guys as I was the only white member of that uh, of that collective. <laughs> and we'd be dancing in a stylistics fashion to everything. And then this song would come on and all bets were off <laughs> and everyone would go fucking mental. <laughs> right from the siren. Yep. Which American listeners might not know because when it came out over in America, they took the siren off because it was a, an American police car siren. Um, um, and while we're doing that, um, my parents and my nana and grandpa will hmm. be looking at the screen going, what the fuck is this? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Never um, mind seven, a whole month of jankers for this one. Yeah, yes. definitely. <laughs> especially, especially Steve Priest. Now, what he's doing there is really, oh, he's, yes. he's wearing a sort of Bismarck-type hat, isn't he? It's, not, yes. it's almost like you're thinking of like coming out in a Nazi uniform when they say, perhaps a bit much. So he thinks, well, we're doing something offensively German. Yeah, hmm. and, and, and just just the sight of that, David, just the sight of that would would, would set the, uh, the, the the grandparents off. Big stuff. And and then later on, Go we on. notice <laughs> the swastika armband. Oh, oh, right, yeah. So, yeah, it does come But he dressed, he dressed as a Hitler on the original Top of the Pops appearance mm. for this record. He had a Hitler moustache <laughs> and a, a sort of a peak cap. Like sort of like an SS, but with an actual Hitler moustache. Yeah, um, well, he's toned it down for for this yeah. one at least. Well, he's toned it. It's midi Kaiser Wilhelm, yeah, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's World War One, and doesn't quite have the same connotation, perhaps. Yeah, but um, it's, it's meaning the same thing. I mean, it's done in exactly the same spirit as when the punks wore swastikas, not yeah. because uh, they had actual Nazi sympathies, but they just knew it you know piss off their yeah. uh, dads and granddads. And all the you know, they live in that culture. But disturbingly, yeah. this is the clip where mm. Steve Priest actually looks like a sexually attractive woman. Yes, uh, mm. perhaps mm. a rather mm. naughty, horsey ex-public school girl yes. with slightly outre bedroom interests. Um, <laughs> and it's mm. it's a it's a bit peculiar to have just sat through Susie Quattro spitting out this super hot sex rock yeah. and think, nah, I prefer that bloke from the suite. Yes. And, for, and for that to be based on heterosexual priorities, um, it's really <laughs> unnerving. It's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> and he is yeah. camping it up big style in this one, isn't he? Mm, mm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, because normally, you know, the camera would just cut to him when he says, we just haven't got a clue what to do. But even when, even when it's a, a wide shot, he's there and he's just giving a little wave to the camera with his fingers. Mm, mm. Just yeah, on a full dad that, bait mission. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I've seen that specific look in the eyes and that specific kind of smile before, but only ever on women who wanted to go to bed with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting watch this. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> The thing is, thing is I, I obviously I was too young to remember 1973, but this, it doesn't matter, this stands outside time. 
as a record so good that it blasts away all the pain and responsibility of thinking and caring and, you know, transforms the whole tired and dusty world into a cartoon where everything that happens is simple enough and big enough to be noticed and understood by an eight-year-old child um, and everything is overstated and impossible to, to miss. Um, and this isn't an easy thing to pull off, but what it does is it allows a, uh, a genuine temporary lifting of the pull cast by death over life. Because for three minutes, uh, for, uh, death is a joke, the same as life is a joke. And this is a better record than the Gene Genie by Miles. Yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. And, you know, it, I mean, it's, uh, people talk about them having the same riff, but it's only Manish Boy and about a million Jimmy Reed songs. You know, it's like it's not like they invented it anyway. Uh, except with, with those 1966 Paul McCartney octave leaps on the bass, like Paperback Writer. But, um, yeah, I don't know if a better single was released in 1973. I don't think it was. Well, I um, don't think this is even the best sweet record in 1973. I think Ballroom Blitz on. is better. Uh, mm, it's an argument. Again, I keep coming up to this thing about sort of... I mean, this was the era of, like, you know, Angel Delight and um, Smash, you know, and Match Protector. And there was this... There was this feeling of like that the inauthentic, that the confected and the um, artificially almost like, you know, and there's a definite sense about this record that, that, that it is just something that's been kind of created in a kind of pop lab, drawing on or influenced by certain sort of inverted commas, real elements or whatever, you know, obviously the big steel from um, um, Gene Genius, um, Taylor's mentioned. Um but it's great for all that. I mean, you know, that's not intended as a criticism at all. And what you get is something kind of extraordinary that's very much kind of of the time. And it's very sort of fleeting. I mean, there's pop music before, there's pop music afterward. There's never quite pop music like this. There's a, obviously pop music that attempts a sort of neo-glam type thing. But it's just this sort of, it's just this weird, weird you know, moment in pop history that, that stuff like this happens. Have you seen that documentary about them? It's on YouTube. It's called... Um... The school's one. I don't know what it is. It's called All That Glitters. Yeah. And it's, yes. Yeah, it was a school's programme. Because right, okay. it highlights again how good they actually were as a rock band, um, but also how desperate they were for everyone to know them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, yeah. There's a lot of talk in it about how they've paid their dues and how they can deliver as a live band and all this sort of stuff. And it never ends well, that. That's no, it doesn't. That no. You get a band whose showmanship is on such a high level and such a big part of their appeal and they get touchy or funny about this stuff. It's like you, you, you end up making a more percussive song-based third album that flops or something. Actually, in the case of The Suite, you end up making amazing records like Action. Um, mm. But... You know, it can't last and it, and it never ends. They started writing their own material in the end, didn't they? Wasn't Love is Like Oxygen and all that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And if you hear their album, they got a, an album live at the Rainbow, I think it's in 1973. And they're really good. And if you listen to mm. this record, the 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 break in this with the stop start drums on it, that's not easy, mm. you know, to mm. to to play that and to play it with the confidence that you hear on this record is, uh, you know, I mean, it's not it's not Emerson, Lake and Palmer, but it's you know these weren't a bunch of dopes, you know what I mean. Um, mm. And it's like for one beautiful year they were comfortable, you know, being mm. being a, a a hard rock band that played this kind of pop music. But but they may, they may it's probable I think that's probably that, that they may have sort of chafed against what you know the, the, some of the sort of you know the, the very idea that they weren't a real rock band they weren't a real this they weren't proper that you know there's emphasis on like oh we've earned us but all that it's like dull kind of rock stuff that musicians take a bit too much pride in. So I mean we, all the attention obviously has gone on Steve Priest but let's not avoid the majesty of Brian Connolly in a skin tight gold jumpsuit with a massive tiger head on the front and also um, Andy Scott who uh, halfway through the song uh, reveals a third leg. Did you notice that? <laughs> yes. During the guitar solo, he suddenly, he's got this kind of like zebra print moo-moo on and uh, underneath it, he, he pulls out a third leg and drapes it over his uh, the neck of his guitar and then, you know, he, he plonks it on the floor and he's just kind of like walking around like a, like a glam Rolf Harris. People nowadays don't see why it's better for a band to look like this than a bunch of male models who've just rolled out of bed. Right, it's because, and what it yeah. is, is because nowadays people only understand laughter as a form of derision, right? It's inconceivable that you mm. might laugh warmly with rather than at a band wearing stupid yeah. clothes. And that's yeah. a terrible thing to lose. And and also nowadays there's this just desperation to be as real as possible. And it's like, no, fuck being real. I'm real. Real can be really shit a lot of the time. Mm. I want people who are, I want to see people who are not real, who come from fucking the planet wow. Yeah. And this is this is these these are the fucking representatives of that planet to my mind. And they, they always have been and they always will be. They are from the planet wow, you know, and this the cartoon planet wow. And there is this sort of sense of just being this artificial creation that only exists in this place and time that has no real relationship to reality and nor should it, etc. etc. And yet at the same time, um, Paradoxically, a sense of realness does kind of shine through in patches. You know, a sense of these kind of being kind of like brickies and being sort of normal blokes. Uh, you know, that, that, that mm. normalness does shine through um, despite all of that. Um, whereas sometimes, you know, in, in pe- when people are sort of striving for that kind of um, authenticity, that realness, whatever, there is there's no sense of um, the, the being in ordinary human beings at all. Yeah. The only bad thing in this entire clip is where the camera picks out someone's bulb patch in the audience, which is the only thing that breaks the illusion of time as a frozen moment. (laughs) (laughs) So Sweet would follow this up with three number twos on the bounce. Hellraiser, Ballroom Blitz and Teenage Rampage. there with their blockbuster. Uh, just a few months ago, it was the 500th anniversary program for Top of the Pops. We had a lot of international stars jetting in from all over the world, and Dawn came. A very special presentation of Tire Yellow Ribbon from the 500th. 
Moment introduces a video clip of the 500th episode of Top of the Pops, sadly erased by the BBC, which features the next song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn. Born Michael Cassavetes in New York in 1944, Tony Orlando was a doo-wop singer in the early 60s before becoming general manager at Columbia Records and then the manager of CBS's publishing wing. However, by the early 70s, he was keeping his hand in as a singer and formed Dawn with Toma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent Wilson and had a number one hit in the summer of 1971 with Knock Three Times. This is their first chart hit since What You Doing Sunday, which got to number three in August of 1971, and it stayed for number one, sorry, and it stayed at number one for four weeks in April and May of this year, keeping Hello, Hello, I'm Back Again by Gary Glitter and Hellraiser by The Sweet from the number one spot. Ugh. I mean, I always wondered when this was on. Uh, I mean, this song was fucking everywhere uh, that summer. I mean, I remember this song reminds me of my 1973 summer holiday, which was on the Robin Hood camp uh, in Chapel St. Leonard's. Uh, everything was Robin Hood themed. There was the Robin Hood camp. Uh, there was uh, the Maid Marian Club. Um, there was Little John's Arcade. And there was a chip shop called the Friar Tuck Inn. Everything was Robin Hood themed except for the direction in which the money was travelling. Yes, <laughs> definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. That place is now called Club Tropicana, the Maid Marion Club. Oh, man, it used to be my playground. I fucking loved it there. And this song was sung over and over and over again. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, before we, before we pile in on this, um, I can't hate this song because it's one of my dad's favourite songs. You know. It's one of the first pop records I remember, even though I don't remember it being out, because my mum yeah. used to sing it to me when I was little. This and oh. Hold Me Close by David Essex. So uh, right. I do still hate it, though. I don't think I exactly hate it. I was always, I think, because I was always kind of intrigued by it for a reason to go into. But one thing, though, I think I heard this record more than I ever actually saw it perform because it actually, looking at this again, it came to me as a surprise mm. that um, the, the, the ethnicity of Dawn and of Tony Orlando himself, because this yes. always struck me as the whitest, most Caucasian creation of any kind ever made. It makes yeah. a picket fence look like Bessie Smith. It's just so. So why? <laughs> as a, as a, play hell, you people are. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's the first shocker. Yeah, he looks like Melchester Rovers' mercurial South American signing. <laughs> he, he does, <laughs> doesn't? Yes, he absolutely does. Yeah, and yeah, and he's got two yeah. backing singers, although they're not the women who are singing on the record. Right. Yeah, and they do look very much at work mm. with their air hostess smiles. Mm. I mean, the thing that confused me about Dawn was. I'd look at them and go, well, which one of those women is Dawn and what's the other one's name? Mm, mm, mm. For a super professional jobbing singer, which is what he was, Tony Orlando is lazy as fuck, right? He's, he's singing live yes. here and he just sort of throws his voice casually towards the higher notes and he usually misses and lets the note just slide back down again, like one of those sticky plastic octopuses that you yes. throw at a window and then it slides down and then finally splatters onto the carpet. That's what his singing's like. He's not really interested. He doesn't take any pride no. in his work. 
And when he does that little ad lib about how it's the 500th yeah. top of the pops, and he can't even remember what it is he's supposed to be talking about. He goes, oh, and the whatever it is, 500th <laughs> anniversary of something. He just doesn't know a shit. Mm. Um, and so I don't see why I yeah. should either. The most entertaining thing about this clip is at the start when the camera's moving towards the stage. Yes. You see, allowing yes. the audience whispering to his mate mockingly while sporting the most spectacular VPL of <laughs> 1973. He looks like he's trying to smuggle a giveaway sign out of the studio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with this song, you know, the grown-ups have won again, haven't they? Yeah, but I was intrigued by it. I can't say that I hate this record because what was he in prison for? Yes. You know, we kind of just got over this. I mean, was it, you know, is he a sex offender? Is it, yeah. Um, yeah is it, is it, how long has he been in prison? You know, 20 years, 30 years? Did he sort of, you know, burn down an orphanage? Did he. Um, no, it was three I mean, years. Yeah, I mean, what's, you know, what. But I mean, you, you, knowing the, 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 the laxity of, um, of prison sentencing. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, the revolving door. Yeah, it was the yeah. That's yeah. right, the revolving door justice system. But could have um, murdered someone's nana. Yeah, okay. So it's been three long years, of wrist. course. Yeah, yeah. Surely, yeah. he would have fried if it had been anything too bad. Mm. I said, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's uh, not, there is he's that, not but it was white, right? So that significantly increases the chances of him heading for yeah. the big chair. That's true, but uh, apparently the song is based on a civil war tune. So he uh, apparently he was a, a prisoner of war uh, in a Confederate prison. But then, why would he be on a bus? You know, perhaps a verse discussing this. Well, I suppose it would have prolonged the whole song. Unfortunately, might, yeah. might have just helped out a bit because I, I was all a bit mystified. It's just like, you know, what did what did what did he go down for? And um... David, you, you you know, we've already discussed the fact that you assumed Terry Jacks actually did have a terminal illness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, and this is a year before that. So you know, did, did you actually think he was a criminal? Do you know what I think? Yes. Do you know what that 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 yes that stirs <laughs> a memory. I suspect they did that. He decided to kind of write a song about his recent experiences. That that uh, yeah, and perhaps you know as part on, on the road to redemption and all that. Um, but still, the fact that he was coy about his actual offence didn't really... It didn't seem to sort of... You know, I just felt that on the kind of the many steps to redemption, I think one of them is acknowledgement of your crime. And yeah. sort of like to gloss over it the way he does in this record seems to me that, I, you know, he's perhaps not really kind of come to terms with things. And Yeah, but I mean, you know, you've seen enough episodes of Porridge to know that you don't talk about what you've done. Yeah, but he's you, not... You know, yeah, Mr not... Barraclough wouldn't take that... Um, yeah. Wouldn't take that point of view... Very mm. kindly, David. Yes, no, 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 see you here, Orlando. Yes, yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, my attitude to this record is summed up by that shot about halfway through where you see that half the audience are standing with their backs to the stage with their arms folded. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, mm. I'm with them and not with the lad with the lemon yellow T-shirt with Bedlam written on it who's bopping gently. <laughs> so, Tie Yellow Ribbon became the best-selling single of 1973. The follow-up, 
Say, has anybody seen my sweet Gypsy Rose? Got to number 12 for three weeks running in September of this year. And they'd only have one more UK hit in 1974. But by this time, they started their own TV show in America. The song would later be used in 1981 when the US Embassy hostages returned from Iran. And in 1983 by supporters of Benigno Aquino in the Philippines. But he got assassinated when he returned there. So it didn't go too well for him. That one. Now the whole 500th anniversaries are cheering. Let me hear you cheer. Cause they can't believe what they see. A hundred yellow ribbons around the That was Tony Orlando and tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And I open up in pantomime at East Ham tomorrow, and that's a song I should be ruining twice daily. So I hope you'll come along and see me. <laughs> right now, though, we're going to outglitter them, I promise you that. Gilbert O'Sullivan's had a fantastic year. This is a lovely one called Get Down and Dance to It, the very lovely Pans People. <laughs> Next to someone wearing a terrifying mask of a fat woman's face with big round pink glasses, continues his threats to outglitter everyone and shills the panto he's in. Cinderella at the East Ham Granada with Anne Aston of the Golden Shot and Olive out of On the Buses. That's a fucking pretty decent lineup, isn't it? Yeah, although, although mm. Anna East Karen. Ham in Anna Karen. East yeah. Ham in 1973 was no place for the likes of Tony Blackburn to linger. So I hope he had no. a very big car taking him as far away as possible after every performance. <laughs> well, this is the uh, this is the the panto he was doing um, when the uh, when he had a moan on the radio about uh, the miners' strike. Oh yeah, because it was uh, interrupting his panto rehearsals. <laughs> oh, dear. This is what we got to look forward to, everyone. When Corbyn gets in, upsetting Tony Blackburn in the twilight of his life. Then he introduces Get Down by Gilbert O'Sullivan. We've covered Gilbert O'Sullivan in chart music number three, so we'll just say that this is the follow-up to Claire, which was number one in 1972, and this got to number one for two weeks in April of this year. Because Gilbert can't make it back to the UK, Pan's people are drafted in to perform the song, which started life as a warm-up instrumental during his stage show and mutated into a song about his girlfriend jumping into his lap while he's trying to have his tea and shitting on his carpet. <laughs> We're going to discuss the performance, but, you know, this Pan's people could have had to dance to Long-Haired Lover from Liverpool or, or Donny Osmond or some shit like that. Thank God Gilbert O'Sullivan couldn't make it back into this country, eh? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, you say that, I, I just wonder how much notice they were actually given, you know, in order to kind of throw together, you know, Flick always throw together a, a routine. Um, we've touched before mm. on the sort of literalness of some of these um, pan people routines, and I think this is perhaps the um, supreme example of that. 
Um, yeah. Um, obviously, I was muster a few hounds as well, I suppose. But uh, yeah, um, I mean, you know, this this is a famous, or infamous clip, really. I think with the early disappearance of uh, of the pooch in the middle. Yes. Um, but you yes. know, they're not phased. Well, I mean, you know, they, they, they like, you know, the show must go on. I think everybody listening to this knows what happens here but pans people in flouncy skirts silver platform heels and fluffy cardigans have been required to dance for the benefit of five dogs who were sat on a bench and 20 seconds in the dog in the middle clearly says bollocks <laughs> to this in dog yeah. language and fucks off he just flounces off doesn't he yeah well, I suppose he is. I mean, maybe he's been trained to do it. Maybe he is the bad dog that we don't want Ooh. around, you know. So maybe he's dismissing he's himself, you know. Yeah, if, which... if, he, if he was the bad dog, yeah. then um, a Babs or someone would be seen rhythmically rubbing his nose into a dog turd or something and being <laughs> well, suppose, punished. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, but the other dogs, they're kind of good dogs, really, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're extraordinarily good dogs, in no, fact. They're, they're doped up, aren't they? They've been, they've been doped up. It's the 70s. No one gave a shit. They just filled them full of fucking Valium. These stupid fucking <laughs> doped up beasts with their tongues hanging out. Fucking idiots. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I can't, I've, uh, no, I can't no, accept that. They're supposed to be slightly embarrassed when that one steps off the podium and pisses off. But he's my favourite because... He's the, he's the one who's got some self-respect. But like I say, and I would agree with that, but it did just occur to me that perhaps this is all part of some sort of, you know, um, that he that he's playing the role. That at a certain point, you know, he's received a prompt to um, depart the stage, like the bad dog in the song who isn't wanted around. around. Oh, fucking hell. David, you've, you've fucked with my mind there. Well, now this is it. I think <sighs> for years, you know, we've seen this as a renegade hound, whereas... Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he does. He does time stepping down off the podium for the bit where the record goes, get down, get down, get down. So it's possible mm. he's just too well oh. trained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 absolutely. Yeah, and maybe he's. It's the others that are sort of staging a sort of passive-aggressive, sarcastic display, in fact, you know. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, all of their behaviour, they're sitting there, so it's like, what, what do you say? I mean, you know, you're giving this ridiculous lecture about my kind of litany of misdeeds. And it's like, look at us, we're just sitting here, we're innocent, <laughs> we're just sitting here. What's, you know, what's the problem? You know, you, you, you're making yourselves look ridiculous with your accusations. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, we couldn't, like couldn't find... Dog as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitting yeah, there. but the white dog is watching the dance. Mm. And he seems vaguely interested yeah. in it. Whereas the others are just staring at the space thinking about bones or, <laughs> or wondering wondering what was in that bowl of pal that they were given <laughs> half an hour ago. Very possibly, yeah. Also, they're at a slight angle. You remember the, the painting in, the, in, the, in Goodfellas, you know, where he goes, Joe Pesci goes around with this little, got the geezer in the boot and they go around and have dinner at his mum's and then there's some of the painting I think she's done. He's like, one dog's facing that way, the other dog's facing the other way. I mean, what, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit like that, you know. Do you think a floor manager ripped that um, branch off Tony Blackburn when he went back for it again, and the, <laughs> the dog just went to fetch it. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another possibility. Yeah, or he could have hurled it in frustration, and then you know, obviously, dog would have obeyed its natural instincts to fetch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it could all. There's, yeah, there's a wealth of theories. Or it could have just jumped down and uh, leapt at Noel Edmonds' throat. Oh, that would have been great, wouldn't it? <laughs> there's a quote from uh, Flick Colby where she said, I hated those mutts 
I wanted cute little poodles and ended up with stinky, mangy old dogs that were just <sighs> useless. That's, I can't accept that. Same, same problem she had a few years later when forming Zoo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about Pan's people now? Oh, it's about time, isn't it? I mean, Christ, you know, it's been a long, long time since we've spoken about Pan's people. We've gone through episodes where there's been no dancers and we've gone through episodes where there's been fucking Zoo and it's like, oh, girls, welcome back. Yeah, here to cleanse me of thoughts of Steve Priest. Yes, <laughs> yes. Sweet, sweet heteronormativity. Oh, God, um, yeah. I mean, my dad and my grandpa would have been going off on this one. Oh, yeah. they used to embarrass the fuck out of me. Every time, if there was anyone attractive on the teller, or we'd be in a car, and my dad would go, oh, she's a bit of all right, isn't she, Al? That lovely, and, and the, the C word was used quite often. Crumpet. Oh, course, cool. yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, she's a lovely bit of a crumpet, isn't she, Aral? And I, oh, I would get so embarrassed. So I, I guarantee you, halfway through this performance, I would have stomped off and mm. sat on the stairs outside the living room and and just felt really embarrassed. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I, that, that embarrassment I've carried through my life. I'm, I'm, I don't chat up girls. No. I'm terrible at it because I, I, I just see it as... And uh, uh, something that's embarrassing. Yeah, this is the strange thing. It wasn't, you know. The, the, yeah, I, I, in the same sort of way. Well, actually, pans people who, like you say, this kind of conduit for all this sort of fucking salivating sexism on the part of this much older generation. Mm. I think genuinely had an effect on people like me that just came of age into the nineteen eighties. I think that's why we're all kind of wore big overcoats and stuff, and were sort of, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, and issued medallions and stuff like that, you know, and, um, you know, we almost affected them. a sort of, a, you know, a sort of asexuality of sorts, you know, because, just precisely because of, like, seeing our elders leering over Pan's people, it had a, you know, had a very formative effect. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we did chat up, yeah. No, but because the thing was, I actually did fancy Pan's people, and it was like, oh, my God, they can read my mind. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I really wanted to do when I was five was go out with all five of Pan's people and walk into the school playground with them holding one finger each on my hand. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what we'd do after that, but, mm. you know, I, I, di- I didn't think that far. Yeah, and even yeah. now I look at them and I, and I don't go, oh, fucking hell, yeah, oh, you know, mm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not no. pulling a, um, a, a Roger Daltrey. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's you know I can't think of pants people in a sexual way. No, I just no, think, oh, I just want to go out with them and old hands and mm. and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, back to the routine. I mean, however cheesy this is, and it and it fucking is, it, because of the lyrical content, it could have been a lot lot worse, couldn't it? Mm. Mm. It could have been smell the glove. Yes, come yeah. to life. It's, yeah. it's it's a very very contemporary 2017 look they've got mm. there as well though isn't it it's like quite often they you know look very much of their time but you know you can see jade out of little mix wearing mm. this stuff it's uh i think they look great and they're so obviously the best of the dance yeah. troops you know like legs and co were better drilled and arguably sexier but they were sort of they didn't have as much personality mm. uh ruby flipper were clearly ahead of their time yeah didn't really have a chance to bed in did the Ruby Flipper and we've not we've not we've not discussed them yet we haven't come across an episode with them on yet and yet that'll be interesting yeah. for me I just think for me I just it, one of the great sadness of this time is that we're living in an era when members of Pan's people are dying of old age yeah Merry Christmas yeah that's <laughs> not right is it but the thing is about Pan's people what 
even though I only really fancy one of them, they do create this... Um, Which one? I don't know her name. It's not Beautiful Babs. It's one of the dark-haired ones, but I, I, they, I don't know... I, I bet it's know, Louise. Cherry, Dee Dee. I don't know which one's which. No, it's, it's Louise. Oh, okay. She's my favourite. Right. She's gorgeous. Oh, it sounded like Max then, out of heart to heart. <laughs> She's gorgeous. Yeah, and when you met her, it was Moida. Yes. <laughs> even though I really fancy one of them, they create this sort of gentle glow of everyday eroticism. You know what I mean? Which is much easier mm. on the heart than the spiteful aggressive sexuality of their 21st century equivalents you know it might be mm. less exciting but it's better suited yes. to Christmas afternoon definitely and we haven't even discussed the song yet have we Gilbert your favourite uh, the amazing thing about Gilbert O is just how alike all his records sound like for someone with pretensions yeah. to being sort of a serious songwriter um, almost all his hits sound exactly the same Um uh, and it, the first one wasn't very good, you know. I like the bit in this where it says, you give me the creeps when you jump on your feet, so get down, get down, get down. That's a brilliant line. I'd like mm. to hear Nick Cave do that, or typo negative. Yes. But the idea that Gilbert could tell anyone else that they give him the creeps when he wrote and performed the mm. song Claire, I think it's a little bit rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, we could get into a huge discussion about Claire, but we're not going to. We'll we'll keep our powder dry on that. But you know, the idea that you could sing a song about your girlfriend and compare it to a dog, um, enough people go, oh yeah, that's a good song. I'll buy that and get it to number one. Well, comedy sexism was partly his thing, though, wasn't it? You know that song, uh, "A Woman's Place." Mm. It's mm. yeah, it's worth a listen. <laughs> And thank God, you know, he, he didn't call his uh, his girlfriend a bad cat in this. Can you imagine what a fucking nightmare that would have been to choreograph? <laughs> or bad elephant mm. or tarantula or something. <laughs> I mean, this could have been far, far worse. I think they picked the right animal here. <laughs> so the follow-up, Ooh Baby, would only get to number 18. And he finished off 1973 with Y-O-Y, which we've discussed before. Get Down eventually got to number seven in America after the record company put it out when they realised that it wasn't about oral sex. <laughs> 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 it's a great criteria for a, yeah, for a record being released. They've yeah. never heard of John Noakes in America, <laughs> have they? They've heard of John Holmes, but not John Noakes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, there so many songs of the 70s, the people thought they were about oral sex. And uh, because they were British, they weren't. I remember an interview with... Uh, I think it was Francis Rossi, a status quo, mm. that, um, you know, people assumed that Down Down was an oral sex song. And he just said, oh, it was the 70s. Nobody had oral sex then. Yeah. People weren't hygienic down there. <laughs> They've been rifling the canteen for hours and hours and hours. The revolvers, of course, for Pan's people. Boom! boom. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Blackburn. It's you we, and I against the rest, you know. Have we done it? Have, <laughs> we, have we out-glittered the rock glam stars of 73? We have definitely out-glittered. You do realise this is the testing time because Mr. Glam is about to come up. Is he really? He's got no chance with this lot. I, I tell you. Thought, I couldn't have thought, done it. I he couldn't have thought, thought so anything up so, to beat this. So, from Tinsel and Gretel to <laughs> Gary Glitter, he's the leader of the gang. Well, <laughs> 
Blackburn and the surrounding kids are now practically buried under an avalanche of tinsel by now, looking like they're wearing that massive scarf Lenny Kravitz once went out in, <laughs> and they introduce Leader of the Gang by Gary Glitter. We've discussed Gary Glitter in excruciating detail in chart music number three, and this is the follow-up to Hello, Hello, I'm Back Again, which got to number two for three weeks in April of this year. It went in straight at number two in July, and it stayed at number one for four weeks, and I would have run right back into the uh, living room for this, because this was another fucking Scott Home Infant School fucking, oh, floor filler. Mm. When I was David, you've had, had the chance. Me, uh, me, Taylor, and uh, Simon had a very big discussion about Gary Glitter. Yeah, and, I mean, there, there's, you know, there's not that. Mention him in a pub. Is, is there anything you want to add to the pot on this there, one? Just nah, various observations. I mean, when I was when I was eleven, um, I just wanted to be Gary Glitter in every respect. I wanted to dress like Gary Glitter. He, he had all moves. I simply would, you know, he was the, the, for some reason not, the, not even David Bowie. For some reason, Gary Glitter. I thought. You know, I absolutely worshipped him. You know, he was a paradigm yeah. as far as I was concerned. Um, yeah, I mean, and the only other thing I'm thinking of to say is that um, it is interesting. I, I was at, um, I was doing a thing for When Saturday yeah. Comes the other day, match, match of the month, and it was um, the, it was a bottom of the table clash between Barnet mm. and Morecambe. Um, and the seventy or so Morecambe fans, all seven or eight of them, were um, singing singing to this. You know, they survived Fucking on the hell. terrace. Come on, come on, Morecambe, Morecambe, <laughs> come on, come on. He hasn't been no. entirely expunged from the and, culture, and nor should it. Songs don't songs don't look at no. filth on the internet. Songs mm. are just songs. Mm. The only problem with this one, though, mm. of course, although it's still a quite good mm. record, it is hard to hear. These, I mean, be, just because of the lyrics, it's hard to hear these days as anything other than an incitement to conspire <laughs> yeah. in something unspeakable. Like you oh picture his God, gang, yeah. like who the fuck's in his point. gang? <laughs> yeah. Suddenly being, being invited to join yeah. seems less of a compliment. <laughs> but as I said before, it's like, yes, yeah. you would listen to Stalin's demo tape. So, you know, there you go. But it's, I mean, this record shows you everything that was good about him and all that was bad mm. about him as a recording artist in that it's uh, it's magnificently vulgar and I sort of admire the way it's not even a song. It's just a, an exercise in whipping up the audience, posing as music. But at the same time, yeah. this is his second best record and mm. there's already quite a drop from the first and it's clearly Which vast, is? Uh, rock and roll. Yes, of course it is. But it's clearly vastly inferior to all the other glam and glitter acts on this show. Yes. Um, It's like you put it next to the Simon Park Orchestra and it's like a massive silver eruption. But Mm. compared to Quattro or The Sweet or Slade, I mean, yeah, come on. Edmonds and Blackburn have been building this up, haven't they? All through the show. Yeah. And, you know... We, we, as you've seen, I mean, we, we've there'll be other bands coming along after this, but you, you, you know, you look at the suite. There, there, there's a band that have pushed the boat out, and and pretty soon we're going to see a, a band who've just fucking picked the boat and just flung it as far as possible. And here, I think the performance is a, is a bit, it's a bit downbeat, isn't it? I mean, because we've already seen this year, we've seen Gary Glitter. Uh, on you know like kind of like strapped to a big silver love heart that's been turned round as if he's been tortured by love 
and then we've seen him do the same song kind of like um on a on a massive half moon and on this one i think that i think the bbc were expecting a, a fucking spectacular and it's a straight band performance isn't it yeah and it's just yeah i suppose that's true it's just him in a sort of strappy silver top uh with yeah. gaps in it spread really tight across the man tits and beer gut like squeezing yes. them out yeah. on both sides it's, yes. his torso looks like a bean bag with a crowbar lying on it it's really <laughs> unpleasant and he's, and he's got these kind of like flimsy American football shoulder pads going on and his boots are playing up as well one of his boots kind of like keeps slipping down Having a little bit of distance from Gary Glitz now, I was thinking, no, it's almost something like, he's like a man in drag as a man. Yes. If that makes sense. You know, there's an element of, um, there's something sort of Danny Lurish about him, but there's no sort of crossover into, you know, femaleness or anything like that. It, it, it just feels, yeah, if you could have a man in drag as a yeah. man, then I think he, that's Gary He's more Glitter. of a butch act than a drag act, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is an okay record, but it's just, now it's, it's difficult to hear Gary Glitter sing Do You Want to Be In My Gang in the same way that it's difficult yeah. hearing Rolf Harris sing Do You Think I Would Leave You Crying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else to say? Only that mm, only that this nah. particular Top of the Pops is being repeated on BBC4 this Christmas. Um, is it now? Full yeah. fancy that. I suspect... Um, this is the bit that the, the the viewers at home will not see. Mm. Yeah. So the follow-up, I Love You, Love Me, Love, went straight in at number one in November and would stay there for four weeks, keeping Let Me In by the Osmonds, My Cuckoo Chew by Alvin Stardust and Paper Roses by Marie Osmond off the top spot. He'd go on to have three top three hits on the bounce in 1974, including a number one with Always Yours, and he's currently residing at Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight and presumably not having a rock and roll Christmas. Who wants to go and freight out Glitterdust? Never mind. Try again next year. You know, earlier on, ooh, <laughs> Top of the Pop scooped everybody because we flew David Cassidy over from America to sing this. I remember April when the sun was in the sky and love was burning in your eyes. After conceding defeat and giving up in his attempt to out-glitter Gary Glitter, Blackburn gets goosed by Edmonds. Well, at least Edmonds is still having a go. And then he introduces Daydreamer by David Cassidy. Born in Manhattan in 1950, David Cassidy started his career as an extra in TV shows such as Ironside, Marcus Welby, MD and Bonanza. In 1970, he landed the role of Keith Partridge in the TV show The Partridge Family, about a widowed mother who forms a band with her kids and quickly established himself as the star of the show. His solo career began in 1971 and he scored his first UK number one in September of that year with a cover of the Young Rascals song How Can I Be Sure. This is the follow-up to the double A side I'm a Clown slash Some Kind of Summer which got to number three in April of this year is one half of another double A side with Puppy Song 
and it got to number one in October of this year, staying there for three weeks. The BBC is screening footage they took of him in March of this year when he was in England for the final leg of his European tour when he played Bellevue Stadium in Manchester and the Empire Pool in Wembley. I mean, he's pretty much the biggest pop star in the world in 1973, isn't he? Yeah, pretty. I mean, it's always it's always him and Donny, but, you know, Donny's got a, a band of Kens and a sister and a fuckwit little brother mm. dragging him down. Yeah. You know, at least at least Donny's got a personality, albeit an unappealing one. The problem for me with David Cassidy, I mean, he's entirely of the moment, and if this had been my moment, I'd have thought, okay, fair play, but it wasn't. So he's like an empty space to me. Um, mm. He mm. seems perfectly inoffensive mm. and yeah. unobjectionable, unless you're Samantha Fox, apparently. But yes. he, but he's barely there. It's like he's got that hair that's like a nothingy colour and shape, and he's skinny in a way that looks like he's trying to take up as little space as possible. And he's got mm. casual clothes and small features, and his voice is breathy in a really forced kind of way. So it has no presence, and it has to be mixed really loud um, to be heard at all. But what he does get right is this air of vague dreaminess which is pitched mm. just right for girls of a certain age in a certain era, which changes yeah. him from an empty space to a, to a blank slate. So he's like, a, yeah. he's like a vessel for borderline innocent fantasies. If you want to see the difference between Donny Osmond and David Cassidy at the time, you only have to refer to the Music Star Annual of 1974, which I'm still flicking through as we talk. And I must say, there are lots of really good pictures of pop stars that are just crying out to have a Hitler moustache drawn on them to piss <laughs> off your older sister. Unfortunately, I didn't have one. But they, they, they did a lot of um, short stories about pop stars, which was, you know, it's, it's like stroke fiction without the stroking, basically. <laughs> and um, the two examples here are Donny to the Rescue. It started just like any other tour for Donny, but then he found himself involved in another kind of start, helping someone build a new life. And then you compare and contrast that with David's heartbreak. This is the story of one boy's love for a beautiful woman and how that love was rejected. The boy oh. is David Cassidy. Here's how he suffered. <laughs> so yeah, D David's pretty emo compared to, to Brighton Bouncy Donna. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's a, yes, there's obviously this underlying sadness about David Cassidy, which um, eventually um, transfers over in his own life. Yeah, he's an empty vessel who poured alcohol into himself uh, in the yeah. end, sadly. It's, um, but, you know, I thought, you know, it is difficult, David, you know, the sense of his nondescriptness, his inoffensive, you know, but he's in that great tradition. Remember that Simpsons episode in which Lisa reads um, Non-Threatening Boys magazine? Um, and um, yes. you know he's obviously in that great tradition, and it's it's almost like it always struck me at the time like the more blandly kind of inoffensive and almost like vaporously nice um, the object of the affections of like you know teen menu were then then almost like the more the more violent and sort of shrieking was the reaction towards them. You know, there's always this bizarre disconnect between you know the sheer ferocity of the energy of like the kind of manias that sort of struck in the 70s and the actual objects of their affection yeah and you know this is brought out in the video isn't it uh, that the, 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 the show um, 
I mean, he, he, he gets off a plane, then he signs some autographs, then he has a bit of a walk around in Kew Gardens, and then he has a bit of a sulk, and then he walks around a fountain, and then he sits on some steps, and then he walks past a wall, and finally he gets in a car with two blokes, mm. and he's never seen of again. <laughs> yes, yes, they come to take him away, ha-ha. Um, yes. he, does get off, he does get off a plane with... David Cassidy <laughs> written on the side, which <laughs> sort of punctures his. Yeah, which yeah. is pretty impressive. This is what this is what most of those top of the pops made videos were yeah. like, isn't it? It's just that usually it was someone you didn't mm. recognise yeah. in it, waving some flowers about outside a church. Mm. You just get the impression yeah, yeah. that if he ever were to sort of <laughs> accidentally kind of stray into a, um, you know, an area of the airport, or whatever, where these people were waiting, he would actually literally be ripped to pieces. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Definitely, but the song—it's a—it's a bit embarrassing that this isn't even the best chart hit called "Daydreamer," and that there's a better one by Menswear. It's—it's <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It, yeah, I don't know. Like I say, if I was around at the time, I'd probably have found something quite charming about this. But yeah, but, but again, it. it it's calibrated that black, but like Cassidy himself, it's almost like calibrated, you know, to have that sort of bland, nondescript inoffensiveness about it. It seems kind of essential to the whole pop relationship. Yeah, I was looking at him and I worked out who he reminds me of. It's Meg Morris from Prisoner's Cell Block H. <laughs> well he's, done, he's sir. He's got the same small apologetic <laughs> features and slightly yeah. sort of mouse-like air about him. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Meg didn't have it good either, did no, she? No, exactly. She, she was a bit emo as well. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refer back to the text. Um, there's a page called, What Makes David So Great? So, you know, you might learn something from this. Yeah. His hair, soft like a wave, streaked like the moon setting across the sea. Touch it. It feels like gold. His <laughs> eyes... See his soul, his sorrow and his pain, the love and the happiness of his life. David is yours. His nose, long and strong like the side of a mountain. Stroke it with your finger. His mouth, like a flower, hiding his white teeth and tongue. His breath, to kiss it softly. His ears, half hidden behind his hair, the lobes soft and white, ears like another world of their own. <laughs> Summing up, what more can we say? He's just great. I can just imagine some sort of middle-aged female hack with a kind of clacking all this out on an old typewriter in an office somewhere, the little <laughs> cigarette dangling off the edge of a lip, you know. Just doing yeah. <laughs> Yeah, picking at some Rivitas. <laughs> so this would be David Cassidy's last UK number one, and he scored four more hits over the next two years, including the first version of I Write the Songs, written by the then-unknown Barry Manilow. In 1974, at a gig at London's White City Stadium, nearly 800 fans were injured in a crush, and a 14-year-old girl died of a heart attack, which caused him to quit touring. He made a comeback in the mid-80s, getting to number six in 1985 with The Last Kiss, and spent the rest of the 80s in musicals such as Blood Brothers, Time and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
He announced this year that he was suffering from dementia in February and died only last month. And this month, Samantha Fox claimed that he had a go at her in a dressing room in the mid-80s and she needed him in the bollocks. Bollocks like a world of their own. Christmas Day edition of Top of the Pops, David Cassidy, and of course his daydreamer. Now, 1973 was a great year for 10cc, a bit of homebred talent indeed. Some fine singles out, a highly meritorious LP, and of course, a load of rubber bullets. covered 10cc in chart music number six and this is the follow-up to johnny don't do it their second single which failed to make the charts in december of 1972 it got to number one for one week in june of this year keeping the re-release of fleetwood max albatross from the top spot and it might have been number one for even longer were it not for the bbc restricting its airplay as they didn't want to draw attention to the british army's use of rubber bullets in northern ireland at the time oh northern ireland did fuck up the pop charts in 1973 didn't it wasn't this the same year when paul mccartney did give ireland um, back to the irish was it or was it 72 um can't remember. Oh, yeah, I think you could think be right. 72. Early seventies, yeah. though. And what was the John Lennon so, one again? We well, did two. He did one called "Sunday Bloody Sunday," uh, right. and another one called "The Luck of the Irish." Oh God! Yeah, the luck of the Irish. Oh my goodness! Which really has has to be heard to be believed. That's the one. Was, I think that Yoko has a hand in the lyricum. That doesn't she? Is it the one about leprechauns? Oh, she, fucking right up to the fucking mm. armpit mm. in it. I think she does. Yeah, this is the song on which Yoko Ono sings. Uh, We'd walk over rainbows like leprechauns. Was it says the world <laughs> would be one big Blarney stone? That's it. Which, it doesn't even make sense. But anyway. 10cc rubber bullets. I've only got I've only got three words for my notes. This is mint. Mm, it is. It's fucking brilliant, isn't it? I'd totally forgotten about this song. Every every time we do one of these uh, episodes of chart music, there's always one song where I go fucking hell. Oh, I, I haven't heard this for ages, and I, I just find myself playing it over and over and over and over. And mm. this and this is it. This is the re- this is probably the only record of, of this lot that would actually bore because I didn't have much money. And um, but I did go out and actually buy rubber bullets. Um, and I mean, you look at it retrospectively oh, well at the done. time. I, I mean, to me, I practiced them with Lieutenant Pigeon because the, you know because the beard on the guy, you know, and, on, um, <laughs> and I just thought it was part of this yeah. beard genre, you know. And I didn't really kind of quite understand things too well, but no, I, I, I loved it. And then retrospectively, I mean, you can see that they're they're almost a sort of postmodern band, slightly ahead of their time, you know. And it's that just at that point in you know in pop rock history where it's starting to kind of look back on its kind of early days or whatever and there's a lot of there's elements of parody and stuff going on a lot of revisitation of like you know the 50s and stuff like that and um um but yeah just i mean maybe i don't i think maybe 10cc never quite get the complete credit they deserve because they may be considered just a little bit too clever by half but um but this is a great record yeah it's all right but um the problem for me is that over the last couple of years, I've celebrated being in my mid-40s by getting into Steely Dan. And what 
this is a sort of a jokey, clunky, less sublime British version of Steely Dan. Um, in fact, ten CC in general sort of are basically. If I'd asked for Steely Dan for Christmas, um, I'd have got ten CC. <laughs> um, it sort of takes the edge of it. But, I mean, they've got the they got the slickness and the smart arsedness and the determination to be pop despite it all. Um, but they're lacking a bit of the uh, the unearthly beauty. Um, also, having to look at them, you see Kevin Godley's revolting fibrous beard mm. hair glistening in the studio lights. I mean, he gets the best moment on this record, that processed churchy prog bit, but yeah. it's spoilt by having to see him looking, um, ironically enough, considering the song, looking like a, a disgraced officer of Greater Manchester Police, <laughs> um, <laughs> suspended on full pay and regretting nothing because the lad was a toe rag anyway, just like his old man. Um, but at least, at least the others have pleasant faces. Um, although there's something, there is something a bit unsettling about the uh, the happy mildness of Lol Cream, who presumably had elder brothers called Lamau Cream and Roffle Cream. <laughs> um, he looks a bit like Ed Miliband gone to seed, which is sort of right. it's kind of charming, you know, but. Yeah, it's all right, but it's, you can you can definitely see the difference here between them and everybody else making you know rock or pop music on this program because yeah. they're dressed like grown ups and yeah. all, all the other bands on this program look completely pissed, which they almost certainly were. Whereas they do those close ups of Eric Stewart and he looks distinctly stoned. Um, <laughs> that, that's the line. You know, I mean, I, I think with 10CC, I think they're a different kind of band from. I love Steely Dan, you know. I suppose maybe ultimately yeah. I would prefer Steely Dan over 10CC, but I don't think I don't. I think they're just a slightly different kind of band, and I think a lot of the stuff that Godlin Cream did together was was very very good as well. So the follow up to Rubber Bullets, the Dean and I got to number ten in September of this year, and they go on to have two more number ones throughout the seventies. Uh, a group without the glitter, if you see what I mean. 10cc, but what a fantastic sound they make. Have you had a nice Christmas? Fantastic, thank you. What present have you had? I had a big cuddly elephant. What, a real life-size one? Oh, yeah, massive. Well, you'll be able to make trunk calls and nothing else. <laughs> well, well, not a good one, wasn't it? <laughs> Here's a group, uh, or not a group, but two singers now who have had a fantastic year. Peters and Lee, not only their first big hit record, but at the same time they had a fantastic uh, Royal Command performance. Let's hear them sing now the one that got them to number one called Welcome Home. Peters and Lee. Detinseled Blackburn indulges in some appalling banter with a young madam about what she got for Christmas involving elephants. Oh, fuck it. Just give up, Tony. Twat. And then he introduces a group 
No, two singers who have just done a turn at the Royal Command performance. Why, it's none other than Peters and Lee and their number one hit, Welcome Home. Formed on the Northern Touring Circuit in 1970, Peters and Lee were a duo consisting of Lenny Peters, the uncle of Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, who was blinded in one eye in a car accident when he was five and then blinded in the other when he was hit by a brick at the age of 16, and Diane Lee, an actress and dancer. Earlier this year, they appeared on the ITV talent show Opportunity Knox and won it for six weeks on the trot, attracting the biggest number of postcard votes the show had ever had during its 14-year run. This was their debut single, a cover of a French song which got to number one for one week in July of this year, a week that saw their debut LP We Can Make It at number one in the album charts, making them the first people to do that in the UK since the Beatles. Fucking hell, Lenny Peters, man, that's fucking harsh, isn't it? Yeah, that was it's actually. An almost, almost Jackson C. Frank level of shitty yeah. luck the original Frank Grimes of pop music mm. um, and then he got cancer and died at 60 mm. and yeah. then a few years later his daughter was murdered while oh really? A, yeah while on a caravan holiday by her boyfriend because she oh. told him he was shit in bed um, oh man so Merry, Merry Christmas Merry Christmas everyone yeah you have to laugh don't you God it's <laughs> oh God terrible um, yeah it's awful the one thing about Lenny Peters was him wearing sunglasses made me believe that any pop star that wore sunglasses all the time was blind as well. So it, it wasn't until the late 80s that I realised that Roy Orbison could actually see. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. I, Les Gray as well, I thought he was blind. There seems to be an almost sort of superstitious sort of thing going back together about the kind of the, the wisdom of the blind, whatever, and that anybody, they're like, you know, it's Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, whatever, Roy Orbison's, been there, that they exude an aura as a result of wearing, you know, like dark glasses like that. You know, they, they see things at a deeper, more mystical level or something like that. They have a sort of... Homeric quality of some sort. I mean, that's mm. anyhow. Maybe that's what you. That's why Bono tries it as well. But um, but um, on a slightly. But um, the only thing, Lenny Peters. I remember getting a cab in the uh, minicab in the late eighties, and you know, started chatting about stuff. And I mentioned working at Melody Maker and Pop and all that. And he said, oh, "I had Lenny Peters in the back of my cab once." And he said <laughs> that like, apparently he was notorious that um, he. You know, he always used this firm, but he'd always insist on a white driver. What? Yeah, you know. That's, that's what the geezer said. He says he always asked for a yeah, but he didn't want a black driver. You know, he always wanted a white driver, and he always like you know. So, yeah. Fucking hell! Despite his sightlessness. Oh, this gets darker and darker. This fucking uh, this segment. I know, yeah. But uh, opportunity knocks. I mean, Christ! Um, at what uh, effect, stroke, damage that wrought upon entertainment? <clears throat> it did, didn't. Pay yes. place. Candlewick oh, Green. God, yeah. Yeah, they were good, though. Oh, right. Yeah, Lena Zavaroni. Mm. Well, Les, Les yeah. Dawson, wasn't he Opportunity Knox? I believe he was, yeah. yeah. you can't, yeah. I mean, Les, 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 was, Les, Les was good. What about Marty Kane? That was New Faces. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. You see, you see the, you, we could sit here and have the, the New Faces versus Opportunity Knox argument, but no. Let's, let's be bigger than that. Mm, mm. But the, t- the, the two of them are wearing matchy-matchy kind of like wine-coloured wine outfits. <laughs> and, 
yeah, they're just sitting there. I mean, because obviously he's not going to fucking dance around or anything like that. So, you know, the, the, the whole effect is of... Uh, I mean, did you ever think there were a couple? No, I never did. I, 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 know, I never really did. I know, I just thought that this was a sort of professional arrangement in, you know, in which they would... Um... There was a big age difference, about 16, 17 years or something. Yeah, yeah. I think there's just a weird thing. I think that we kind of accepted. It's like with Donnie and Marie Osmond. It didn't. I can't pretend that it particularly phased me. I just thought they were kind of two professional singers singing a romantic song that required a male and a female voice. Really, I didn't mm. really sort of get any sense of or sexual chemistry or a kind of bizarre lack of sexual chemistry or anything like that. It um, didn't really occur to me. Probably didn't really occur to a lot of people. No. I always thought they were a couple because they were still around when I was a kid. They were still about in the late seventies. Yeah. And I remember, first of all, I remember my mum having to explain to me that he was blind. He wasn't just cool. Because um, <laughs> if you look in this clip, he looks like Sterling Morrison. It's yes. quite impressive. But no, I thought they were cut because I was always slightly disturbed by these rapturous, worshipful glances which mm. Lee would give Peters. And she's doing it here. She's doing it in this clip. Yeah. And I don't know what she's playing at because they weren't a couple. No. And so presumably it's just for show but it's really awkward to watch mm. I don't know <laughs> I suppose she, she couldn't really look at him with open repulsion and put her fingers in her mouth I suppose could she but it's uh... no <laughs> but I mean again like Tie Yellow Ribbon mm. I, I can't hate this song because my mum used to sing it a lot but also when I worked I worked in a furniture factory in the late 80s and uh, whenever someone went for an overlong shit in the morning, uh, the entire factory would sing the chorus of this when they got back to the bench, absolutely ramping up the volume when it got to you've been gone too long. To me, it might almost be tolerable without that fucking pub piano, which goes all the way through it like a beer stain. Yeah. Um, really loud in the mix, pushing everything yeah. else out. Um, it's just, it's not a sound that, Mm. brings happy memories to me I, I can't can't listen to it mm. but it's just a, another reminder that um so much of like you know i mean in the 70s you were living in the 70s but you were living among the furniture and the people you know that formed like you know like decades earlier you were living in the 20s you know you were, you know you, you were living among people whose values were formed in the edwardian age and who were still kind of influential and had a kind of you know a huge say in the way that things were and um yeah, and stuff like that. This is just another reminder of that, really. Um, the 1973 Royal Command performance, though, they appeared on it with Dick Emre, Les Dawson, Rudolf Nureyev, Cliff Richard, Ronnie Corbett, Duke Ellington, and the Doogie Squires second generation. <laughs> and, you know, when you're cheering a bill with the Doogie Squires second generation, you know you've, you've made it. <laughs> I mean, they were huge in 1973, weren't they? It's almost like acts like Peters and Lee and, and you know, even Little Jimmy Osmond and things like this and maybe even the Simon Park Orchestra type stuff. They were almost like they functioned as sort of sandbags against this impending tide of glam and androgyny and weirdness yes. or whatever. And it's just like, it was almost like, a res, you know, that they represented a kind of respite, you know, of sanity. You know, and it's just like propriety and the way that things ought to be and whatever. It's, um, you know, yeah. on, this ongoing war between, you know, both sides of the generation gap. And it's just so pronounced yeah. in a programme like this, you know, it's just bizarre, you know, the ups and downs, it's so pronounced. Yeah, the audience aren't digging this at all. Mm. There's a <laughs> there's a long-haired lad 
at the front in a denim waistcoat with a Confederate flag patch on the back. <laughs> and he's nodding <laughs> his head along with it, but he's he's not digging yeah. it. And neither of the others, and who can blame yeah. Well, no. Lenny Peters would have approved the Confederate flag thing, possibly, given his... Uh... <laughs> but, I mean, this song, I mean, my, my my family would have been swaying along on the armchair amongst the pall of fag smoke and passing around the nuts. And it's, you know, it's a suitable song for a Christmas top of the pops, I think, because, you know, where else are you going to mm. be at Christmas but at home? And shut the fucking door because mm. it's freezing. <laughs> So, Welcome Home became the third best-selling single of 1973. The follow-up, By Your Side, only got to number 39 the previous month, but they'd have a number three hit in May of 1974 and their own TV series on ATV in 1976. They split up in 1980, but would reform in 1986 and would perform together until Lenny Peters died in 1992. Oh, and Taylor, do you remember that conversation we had uh, when Imagination were yeah, on? Yeah, which one? And Lee John revealed how he got his name yeah. with the three E's on the end, standing for... Uh, extra Exciting Energy. All bullshit. <laughs> because in a 2003 interview, Lee John of Imagination revealed that the extra E on his name came when he started his career as part of the duo Russ and Lee... And he didn't want to be confused for Diane Lee. Because <laughs> that would happen, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, Peters and Lee John, that would be a fucking amazing <laughs> duo, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, we're all loving this, dude. As long, especially mm. if, it, if he wasn't told. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for 20 years I've been performing with this <laughs> opportune moment to say to all of you at home I hope you're having an absolutely fabulous Christmas day nice and relaxed and really managing to enjoy yourselves after working very hard during the year a gentleman who's been laboring intensively in 1973 is Roy Wood on his own and with the band Wizard and that is exactly the combination we got now Wizard and see my baby jive wishes everyone a Merry Christmas and introduces See My Baby Jive by Wizard. Formed in 1972 when Roy Wood, formerly of The Move, fell out with Jeff Lynne and left the Electric Light Orchestra, taking two members of the band and their sound engineer with him, Wizard made their debut in late 1972 with Ballpark Incident, which stayed at number six for three weeks in January of this year. This is a follow-up which got to number one for four weeks in May of this year. And there's so much to talk about here, but this is where me and Top of the Pops began. This is the one, this is the episode of Top of the Pops where I went round Tony Bones' mum's house and see my baby jive was number one. And, you know, this song, man, I can't tell you how much it means yeah, to me. Yeah, it's, 
it's um I mean, I'm just thinking about my granddad because actually Roy Wood annoyed him more than any of the others. I think it was like whole years <laughs> jankers for Roy Wood. Um, he really did. So I think it's probably just as well for like the blood fresh of people like my granddad that he would have had time for him to sort of cool down doing well, you know, before the onslaught begins again. Yeah. And he's absolutely relentless yeah. with, with Wizard. They always seem, I think they always seem to be sort of outdoing themselves. I mean, obviously got like geese dressed up as gorillas or whatever and washing machines, you know, it was yeah. a bit like Faust at times, you know, with a cement mixer on, on, on or something like that. But um, um, yeah. maybe that was a slight problem with Wizard is that they maybe shortened their life a little bit by just trying to pull out absolutely all the visual stops every single time. But um, but yeah, yeah for, for a while it was, yeah, great fun, you know, I loved them. They have brought everybody yeah. they know yeah. here, haven't they? They've got two people in gorilla mm. suits one of which looks even more frightening when he takes the fucking mask off. <laughs> uh, you've got someone dressed up as an angel on roller skates. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got loads of girl singers doing some really appalling dancing at the back, but having a <laughs> right laugh. And and of course, Roy Wood starts playing a vacuum cleaner like <laughs> a cello. It's like they they they're making every effort to be remembered over yeah, everybody yeah. else on this episode, which is how <laughs> it should be, really. Yeah. It's like everything but the kitchen sink, but next time they bring the kitchen sink sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, this is a much, much better record than I wish it could be Christmas every day. Um, yes. Although I first knew this one from one of those shit hits of the 70s albums, one of those mm. low-fidelity compilation albums with 10 tracks crushed onto each side. And it was yeah. pressed on vinyl that's so thin and such low quality it was like they'd cut a circle out of a bin bag and <laughs> and I played it on my Matsui MIDI system which weighed as much <laughs> as a cardboard box and it had like a plastic stylus or something so it scoured records as they played right. and so the last track on each side of every album sounded like you were listening to it while drowning in a vat of iron filings so the thing about this because it's got that uncanny uh, impersonation of the Phil Spector production on it. Um, it that the delicacy of that was completely lost, um, and it just sounded like a nursery rhyme being beamed in from Mercury. Um, so every verse sounded progressively murkier. So all those bits where there's a brief stop and then the song turns around and starts again, it was like taking a quick gulp of air before having your head plunged even deeper into the barrel. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> horrible. But in fact, when you hear this properly, um, it genuinely sounds as gorgeous and otherworldly as uh, as the Spectre stuff. Um, yeah. I'd say it lacks a little bit of the emotional oomph because it's so obviously an exercise, but it's a successful exercise. I would sooner hear this song 12 times one after the other than the Spectre Christmas album. You know, it just reminds me of a, of an extremely happy time in my life. And yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's generous. It's piling on. If you think about the kind of austerity in all kinds of ways of the early 70s, then, you know, there is a sort of hugeness, a generosity about, you know, it's just layer after layer of stuff, yeah. Plenty of mm. everything, you know, it's got that real feel to it. But, you know, my granddad, I mean, he, he disliked Roy Wood, more, like I say, wizened, particularly Roy Wood, and I'd sort of have to, you know, egg him on a little bit and say, so, you know, what would have happened if Roy would have turned up on parade looking like that? And he was like, <gasps> first of all, he'd be glad to fall out of the ranks, then he'd be marched right, 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 right to his commanding officer, then he'd be shaved from head to toe, that's what he'd be done, and then he'd be two out of <laughs> p- 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 bloody potatoes, and it was just like, you know, and it would just seem to 
rising and rising and rising is gorge. Um, oh, that was what it was all about, thing. and that was that was exactly what it was all about. Yeah, and it's exactly what you want out of your pop stars, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he, he does look here like a white George Clinton, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. Yes. Sort yes. of early eighties George Clinton. Mm, yeah, I mm. just wish he didn't have the beard because it slightly makes it all look a bit unconvincing but then again if you've seen what the bottom half of Roy Wood's face looks like without the beard you can see why he grew it (laughs) I like him to me he's the thinking man's Jeff Lynn (laughs) very good (laughs) do you think they knew they were going to be on second to last and they obviously knew who was going to be on last and it's like right we're going to fucking upstage these bastards yeah yeah but this is all about excess the uh, sound of the record and obviously the presentation yeah. uh, like it tries to swamp you whereas uh, whereas yeah. the group who were number one had more of a boxer's instinct so they still win yeah. and you can see why they sold more records because they just they just step inside yeah. your reach and bang yeah I mean at this point you'd be thinking fucking out ELO are fucked aren't they out of those two bands ELO and Wizard it seems really obvious as to who's going to be the more dominant band of the of the yeah, era yeah but ELO appeal to blokes in tinted sunglasses and Wizard never would <laughs> but ELO had ended up having more longevity you know and maybe it goes back to that thing of just like I say pulling out all the stops every time so it's harder to kind of maintain that level Mm. Also, the gorilla suits that the guitarists mm. are wearing. It's the same one worn by Eric Idle in the Monty Python Gorilla Librarian sketch. Is I, it? Yeah. Well, no, it's the same style. And I don't know if oh, they got the actual from the, same. <laughs> I don't know if they got them from the BBC, in which case it almost certainly would be the same one, or whether they right. brought them from home. I suspect the latter. So the follow-up, Angel Fingers, got to number one for one week in September, and their current single, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, is currently at number four and stayed there for four weeks. The band split up in 1976, by which time Benny and Bjorn of ABBA acknowledged their debt to this song when they wrote Waterloo. My baby Jive. Fantastic. Well, we're completely glitterless. We're glitterless but tassel free. We are. Whatever. (laughs) We certainly are. I hope you're all having a lovely Christmas at home. Shall we see if we can hit them at home with one of these streamers? Wait a minute. Oh. Missed again. Never mind. They're fighting back. How dare you? (laughs) We leave you and we wish you a very Merry Christmas from everybody here at Top of the Box. We leave you with the sound art. The number one sound. Slade. Well, it's Slade. Merry Merry Christmas, everybody. everybody. Bye bye. Edmonds and Blackburn announce that they are tassel-free, wish us Merry Christmas again, and sign off with a Christmas number one of 1973, Merry Christmas Everybody by Slade. This is, of course, the national anthem of Christmas, and the follow-up to My Friend Stan, which only got to number two in October of this year because of eye level. 
It was recorded in New York in late summer when manager Chas Chandler suggested they have a go at a Christmas song which the band were dead against. However, Jim Lee reworked a song called Buy Me a Rocking Chair which was part of their set when they were the in-betweens in the late 60s and Noddy wrote the lyrics at his mum's arse in Warsaw after a night on the piss. Let's start with the performance because as soon as the song starts the stage gets bum-rushed by the kids until it becomes hard to see where the band are, even though they're still wearing the same stuff as they did with Come On, Feel The Noise. It's, it's made to think that, like, I wish it could be Christmas every day was... There was just a huge glut. It was a great... You know, Chris, there was such a glut of, of records, the Christmas records made around this particular era. It's all dominant now. Mm. I mean, you know, and it's almost like... Um, you know, it was a sort of halcyon era. It was a halcyon era of Christmases for me, but it seems to have sort of generally been, you know, it seems to have persisted right down the years, you know. I mean, even like Greg Lake and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and obviously, you know, just yeah. like early, even sort of John, John, John Lennon, it's... Um, um, yeah, I mean, because, I mean, before then, it was, it was you know, either by the late 60s, it mm. was like Beatles songs... And then it, by the turn of the decade, uh, you had your novelty song. So you had Ernie, the fastest yeah. milkman in the West. Um, last year, you had the ultimate novelty song, which was Jimmy Osmond. But the one song that I think started it off, um, that started bands wanting to record Christmas songs, was yeah. John Lennon with Merry Christmas, yeah. War yeah. Is Over. Um, and it's... Um if ever somebody did a history of Christmas, I don't know if anybody's written such a book, and I think they would sort of look at this, that for some reason various forces coincided to make sort of Christmases um, especially kind of, I don't know, sort of bright and appealing. Maybe it was just sort of like colour bursting through the first time. It was an association with glam and all the kind of sort of colour mm. sort of involved in that. And somehow, maybe it's to do with colour televisions just beginning to sort of come in and, you know, on certain kind of shows, you know, TV shows that were kind of, you know, whether it's two Ronnies and Morgan Wise, all sort of conflating all at once. Um, I mean, these were my favourite mm. Christmases. I mean, I'll never have Christmases like this, this again. You know, the, the, the early 70s Christmases no. were, were the best. And they were never the same. You know, they start to tail off a bit. Almost, you know, the way that, like, Morgan Wise sort of tail, tail, tail off in the late 70s. Um, you know, it's Christmas yeah. metaphorically went to ITV at a certain point, but um, um, but yeah, and, and this is this crowns everything. Merry Christmas, do I say crowns everybody? I mean, there's always that debate about um, you know, like this was people. You know, this was still in the charts in February. I mean, who the earth was buying Merry Christmas? Everybody was saying yeah. February. I would have. Yeah. I would have. You know, if I could have afforded it, if I'd have scraped together my pocket money, and, you know, not to do it, I would have cheerfully yeah. bought it in February. I think this is the best Christmas song ever, simply because it's one of the few truthful mm. Christmas songs. You know, there's no bollocks about the wonder yeah. of Christmas. No one's asking you to be decent mm. to each other. It's a song that basically says, look, we've been allowed some time off, so let's get yeah. battered. There's no religion in it. There's mm. no, you know, it's just, oh, it, here it is. Let's And the funny it. thing is, as well, it unifies the generation. We've been talking all this time about, you know, the, you know, the war between the old and the young and the kids and grown-ups. And, of course, they've got that yeah. line about the granny saying that the old songs were the best. Then she's up there rock and rolling with yeah. the rest. You know, you've got that beautiful, you know, like little yeah. touches like that. Taylor. See, I'm going to be a bit of a grump because to me... Oh, no. Fucking I mean, hell. It's, you know, it's all right, but it, this is... This is the worst classic era Slade single, which is mm. okay. That's a high bar, but I, I mean, I appreciate how it's. This is possibly the first Christmas single that's actually about a contemporary working class Christmas, mm. which is one thing it's really got going for it. Uh, 
But first of all, any charm this record had for me pretty much died when they let it be used to sell toilet paper. <laughs> I'm a bit old-fashioned like that. Yeah. But also, it's I, to me, this doesn't quite do what it's trying to do, which is to capture that very particular kind of self-conscious, slightly poignant euphoria that people drink to achieve at this time of year like you come out of the pub and you see the lights and you slide into this lazy state of false hope and emotional inclusivity like you want to clap along with something you know <laughs> um and it's but it's tainted with a sort of morbid melancholy because there's still a part of your brain that's thinking and remembers that once you get past a certain age and a young age probably 21 or 22 uh, Christmas is also a yearly reminder of ageing and loss mm. and increasing cynicism despite yourself, right? Despite your best attempts to experience this magic which maybe no longer exists. Um, so I can't help it. I look at this 90-second overhead shot of the audience halfway through this song, which I think is inserted to cover up Wizard's custard pie assault. Yes, Slade, yes. Right? Yeah. Wizard, who were semi-jokerly jealous of Slade beating them to Christmas number one ran on halfway through the song and, and pied Noddy yes. um, which we're not allowed to see yeah and that's such a that's shame a sort of censorious BBC thing oh it's a bit, yeah it's a bit like when you have streakers yeah Mm-mm. yes it's yeah. not the kind of thing you want to see it is the kind of thing we want to see yeah because he suddenly um, appears with a custard pie over his yeah, face yeah precisely and it's there's no explanation of it but so I'm looking at this 90 second overhead shot of the audience, right, trying to dance, um, mm. and he's. Uh, but I look at them and I feel like crying because he says, "Look to the future now; it's only just begun." And I'm thinking, well, half these people are probably dead now, and the others, yes. the others never made it, like not like they wanted to, you know. So I like the fact that this record is not just a knees up, and there's an interesting hint of. Uh, cheery melancholy to it but I can't quite get it because I don't think it quite pulls it off I, I don't think there's an atom of melancholy in this song at all I think it's absolute unbridled cheeriness and I think that I mean clearly it takes the place in times you know and there's a sense that like you know Britain is kind of on the slide and you know they are sort of dark days in all kinds of ways literally um, and it isn't an especially kind of hopeful time, but I, you know, and I just think it just sits then as now, whenever, in just in absolutely def- in, in de- defiance of all of that, you know. Yeah, but remember, you're talking to the person here who thinks uh, what wonderful world sounds like somebody on mm. their deathbed. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. Yeah. I always, I always hear the the tragedy in any pop. Oh, that was number one when I was born, mm. Taylor. It's a celebration of me. Yeah. Actually, but I, to, to be on, to be honest, I I do tolerate this record, same as I tolerate the rest of a British Christmas, because you sort of have to, right, to stay yeah. upright and to stop your trolley from tipping over, because we don't <laughs> we don't live in a snowy lamplit Victorian house with children skating mm. on a frozen pond outside, <laughs> and there is no peace on earth, and yeah, but our over familiar surroundings look a bit different for a week or two and we get a pass to drink and loaf and behave like a happy person like a happy free person would for a few days 
But it's, it's and, a euphoric and, record. And I, I, I really take Al's point about the fact that there's no preachness about it. There's none of that sort of Christmas eve sort of piety. There's no sort of religion. It is, it's, it's a Christmas, you know, a lot of Christmas songs are Christmas eve type songs. And this is a Christmas day song. It's about, you know, it's that, that's a euphoric point, you know, or sort of perhaps a little bit too early in the day about, you know, 12, 12, 30, that's that sort of time. And it's, you're there right in the moment. It's Christmas. And, and it is looking, you know, because it's, you know, you've got, a, you know, you've got a few more days or whatever you can sort of party on a little while longer like this and I think in a sense that that despite its lack of kind of like you know humanity you know wishes of peace and goodwill to all humanity and all that kind of thing I think it does the listener far more of a favour than those songs by its sheer sort of message of set you know just its sheer euphoria I think it's done a lot to, to make humanity feel better than, than the records that are intended the preachier records yeah, and and you know it's all in the line. Look to the future now; yeah. it's only just begun. It doesn't say look to the future now; it's going to be fucking brilliant. Mm, mm. It just says look to the future. You're in it. You're still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and even though when I hear this in Tesco's as part of their Christmas tape that loops round, it's not a great experience. But it does. It's true that this record does <laughs> signal the temporary change, right? And whatever else we have to put up with at this time of year, you know. And however little mm. fun it might turn out to be, and however badly it highlights your loneliness or your increasing distance from real magic, it does remind you that the rest of the year, whatever you're doing in the rest of the year is not really it, you know. And it provides an arbitrary line which allows us to pretend that next year we're going to somehow change something or other, right? which we almost certainly won't, but that thought can keep you together for long enough yeah. that who knows if there's ever good luck yeah. to be had, and the older you get, the more you realise that good luck is really 50% of what it's all about, then hey, at least, at least we'll still be fucking alive to receive it. So you just drink up and mm. shut up and let the children sing and deal with it, and that's the real meaning <laughs> of Christmas. It absolutely is, yeah. I mean, it's God blesses everyone. But I mean, you know, Christmas songs, I fucking hate them simply because they get banged on over and over again for a period of time, long before they should be, uh, in places where you don't want want to hear them. I mean, I, I remember being working in a casino in 1990 and there was a Christmas tape and it would be played about 12 times during my eight hour shift and I'm standing there and I'm listening to Merry Christmas everyone by fucking Shaker um, for the 10th time just with this glassy eyed stare just just thinking to myself this is not the James Bond fantasy I thought it was when I took the job (laughs) but when Merry Christmas everybody came on by Slade it was like, ah, oh, yeah, it's Christmas. Ah, you can't, you, it doesn't wear with time. And God knows we must have heard this song more than practically any other song we've we've talked about on chart music. And it's still got something to it. Even more so nowadays, because, you know, we're, we're looking to the future now in this country and thinking, oh, fucking hell, mm. we're in for some shit. I, always, I must admit, when he said look to the future, I tend to think he's looking to up to and including December the 28th or something like that. But uh... <laughs> Yes, yeah. Mm. Back mm. on the morning <laughs> shift. 
So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Sold 350,000 copies on its first week of release and went straight to number one 10 days ago, with a single in such high demand that Polydor imported a quarter of a million copies from America and ordered its factory in Germany to produce an extra 30,000 copies a day. Merry Christmas everyone would still be number one by the middle of January 1974 and ended up selling over 1.2 million copies. However, it would be their last number one and the follow-up every day got to number three in July of 1974. In 2015, it was estimated that Merry Christmas everybody generates half a million pounds in royalty every year and at the time of recording, it's at number 30 in the UK singles chart. It's fucking going to outlive all of us, isn't it, this Absolutely. song? But then maybe so will, so will Shaking Stevens as well. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. And <laughs> Jonah Louie, Stop the Cavalry. Yeah. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, all three channels are forced to put on the Queen's speech. Uh, I don't know what she said, but it was probably something about our family's doing all right and we've all got to do this and that and whatever. Yeah. And then BBC One follows up with Billy Smart's Christmas Circus the pantomime Robin Hood with June Whitfield, Terry Scott, Anita Harris, Billy Dainty and Donna. Then the Christmas Generation game, the Mike Yarwood Christmas show, the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show with Yehudi Menuhin, Rudolf Nureyev, Andre Previn and Laurence Olivier. And then the film The Odd Couple, a gala performance with some ballet and orchestral palaver and finishes off with the ghost story Lost Hearts. BBC Two has the Julie Christie, Terence Stamp, Peter Finch and Alan Bates film Far From The Manning Crowd, the Buster Keaton film The Railroader, then a performance in English by Les Moreaux de Paris, the French puppet theatre, then an episode of Face the Music, Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev do a bit of dancing, Alice Through the Looking Glass and finishes off with the film Quatermass and the Pit. ITV are now screening the film Where Angels Go, Trouble Follows about a progressive young nun who gets involved in civil rights and peace demonstrations teaches novices how to make bombs and is considered groovy by them followed by Danny LaRue and Peggy Mount in the pantomime Queen of Hearts then Jimmy Tarbuck presents all-star comedy classics featuring short episodes from Man About the House Says Les, Billy Liar and Doctor in Charge then it's Tommy Cooper's Christmas with Sasha DeSalle and Clodagh Rogers and the big film Von Ryan's Express. Finally, Grant Evans and the Welsh rugby player Barry John introduced Christmas songs from around the world and the night finishes with What Was He Like? where the current Prime Minister Edward Heath bangs on about who he thinks Jesus was. And, and hopefully at the end he says, yo, man, what do you expect? The guy's a gigolo, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fucking hell, big guns all over the place. Mm. When telly was teller. Yeah. Busy Christmas for Rudolf Nureyev. Mm. And the telly... Oh, he's all over the fucking shop, isn't it? And the telly only went off if it was a power cup. Otherwise yeah. it was on. You know, I mean, the idea of a switched off telly is just... Oh, ridiculous. I know. It was just like, you know, just get the electrician in or wait for the, you know, the miners strike to stop. I mean, that was the only reason the telly ever went off. Yeah. So, chaps, what are we talking about over the handlebars of our new choppers tomorrow? Yeah, I think it works towards the um, the conclusion, I suppose, basically. I think it just all piles on there with Wizard and Slade. Yeah, it's hard to... 
once they've stopped got going there, it's actually hard to recall what's what's passed previously. So even like you know your ten CCs uh, and Gary Glitter, you know they time you get, kind of get lost in the wash really. Uh, Gary Glitter must be must have been looking at the last two acts and thinking, oh fucking hell, should have done more there. Should have bought me motorbike. Yeah, should have. That motorbike was brilliant. I bet you wanted a motorbike like that, didn't when you, David? When you were on your chopper, did you feel a bit like Gary Glitter? That's sort of that's like. That's sort of like being on a speedboat and swerving two inches from the rocks. <laughs> well done. No matter where you lived in Nottingham, there was someone on your street who worked for Raleigh. So you could either get bikes cheap or parts cheap or, you know, in a lot of instances, a lot of kids had like franking bikes from different parts of rally bikes that had been smuggled out. Ah, I remember one lad. He had uh, he had a, a rally chopper and he had a, a car steering wheel fitted onto it. He's he's probably fucking probably crippled up now or something. Mm. But you know, do, who, who gives a fuck? He looks skilled. I'm no expert in kind of car cycle hybrids, but I suspect that that um, yeah there might have been a few flaws in his uh, little uh, yeah plan there. Taylor, what are we talking uh, about? Perhaps the mystery of. Noddy holders spontaneously foaming sideburns. <laughs> mm. And what would we have bought this year? A lot to choose from, isn't it? Yeah, there? I mean, of that selection, certainly anything. I mean, rubber bullets, yeah, sweet slade. I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty much kind of, you know, standard issue in, in, in the particular wars that were going on. Um, and, you know, the, the the division is, you know, it's just very, very opposite. Style. There's very little ambiguity, really, um, in, in that selection tonight in terms of, like, the great cultural divide. Um, yeah, so I would have faithfully, um, affordability been a factor. Yeah, everything like the Sweet, Wizard, Slade, 10cc. And um, I would have spurned the rest. This question is like, a, the answer is like a flow chart. It just says, you know, what records are you buying? Are you under 50? Yes or no? And there's only two options. Yeah, Slade, Quattro, Sweet, Wizard. And what does this episode tell us about 1973? What's more charming is what it doesn't tell us about 1973, which is that in so many ways it's all downhill from here. Um, I mean, with the exception of Gary Glitter's appearance... None of it really highlights any of the areas in which things needed to improve, right? None of it really highlights the bad side of the 1970s. But there's lots mm. of examples of what was good, or at least quite admirable, about 1973. And a lot of people having a lot of fun here, very unselfconsciously. Um, you know, whereas, of course, mm. with hindsight, the song recorded in 1973, which came closest to the truth, was... End of the Rainbow by Richard and Linda Thompson, which uh, is an address to a toddler <laughs> about my age at the time, who, like everyone else born either side of the oil crisis, would grow up against a backdrop of continuous decline. But it's nice to see the other side of 1973, of this sort of um, people fearsomely alive um, in all the in all the horror and glory. Um, I enjoyed this a lot, except for Peters and Lee. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of the things that were huge, and not just like Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd, Hughes, it's obvious that Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin are never going to feature on top of the pops. But, you know, people like Stevie Wonder at his height, you know, is nowhere near this. And then David Bowie isn't getting a look in it, whatever. You know, it's interesting. Like that, that there is almost... that there's, 
but the, the, there are most of the sort of like um, suspects, you know, in, in the sort of pop world at that time, are there? You know, your Gary Glitter, your Sweet, your Slade, or whatever. Who, and they're never going to be quite taken seriously at that stage, you know, by the rock press. Um, but um, I think you know they're, they're performing a sort of, glam would perform this really vital task, really. And um, I, I think it was, you know, and especially at a time when. You know the nation was in a kind of pretty dismal state. Um, at the same time, you got this process in reverse. I think that people are learning about enjoying themselves. Some of the sort of spirit of the '60s, some of the sort of hedonism of the '60s, is trickling down eventually. Because a lot of people talk about the '60s, and and it was actually slightly rarefied. You know, I mean, it wasn't really trickling down that far. And I think that the sort of pop fun, as it were, pop euphoria, is. A certain kind of post-war kind of euphoria in 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 in, in the culture is really trickling down into people's lives via the television and things like that, uh, via the colorization of things. And uh, you know, I think mm. that like nineteen seventy-three is really signalling that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still, I mean, you know, the schedules are still kind of you know bleak, you know, in like great long patches. You know, there's a lot of like darkness in the rafters and on the peripheries or whatever, and work shit, and you know, and it's, and as Taylor says, you know, there's double diamond and, dr- and dry rot and all that. Kind kind of stuff but there's a sort of gradual you know it's a, it's a sweet stage I mean you know now our lives are kind of suffused I mean there's too much everything's a super saturation really of sort of popular entertainment and a lot of it's kind of paralytics or rubbish whatever but at this stage it was kind of a, it was still a kind of novelty and it was new and it's euphoric and almost innocent in a way um and, um, and you know, and I guess obviously it reminds mm-hmm. me of like, you know, I was just coming into my, you know, at the age of about 10 or 11, you're just beginning to become conscious of things, you know. So I suppose, you know, it has holds enormous affection for me for that reason. Yeah, whatever else it was, the early 70s was the 60s for ordinary people. I mean, for me, this episode's probably the hardest we've, we've had to talk about simply because everything's a massive number one hit. Mm. Uh, it's something that everyone knows about, and you know, there's no, there's no real surprises in it. Mm. And the other reason why it's so hard to talk about it is a genuinely enjoyable episode. Mm. Yeah, a lot of it is a wallow in the past, but I mean, some of the songs that we've we've gone through today are some of the best songs I've ever heard in my life, mm. and some of the songs that mean the most to me. And you know, because. It's an episode where I can remember exactly where I was and exactly who I was with. At times, watching this episode was like getting a massive hug from people really close to me who aren't here anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. And the other other last thing I was going to say is just actually, you know, David Cassidy, Donny Osmond, you know, they're pretty sort of, you know, terrible these episodes. They're incredibly sort of bland and they just feel... And yeah, if you actually went to any of the gigs or even just any public appearance that they made, I mean, it would have been more ear-splitting, more frighteningly mm. kind of voluminous, you know, than any Jimi Hendrix ticket or anything like that. I mean, it would be, you know, to be in the midst of the euphor- you know, euphoria, the mania about these kind of people would have been a, most, a far more frightening energy than even, like, you know, the most out-there rock band could muster. So that closes the book on another episode of Chart Music, the last episode of 2017. Um, Usual shit. You can go on our website at www.chart-music.co.uk. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, or you can get involved with us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. No problem. Joy of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, David Stubbs. Yes, yes, I'll second that. 
And a special thank you to our other guests who've been on Chart Music over the year, which is Sarah B, Simon Price and Neil Kulkarna. And a special thank you to you, the pop-crazed youngsters, particularly if you've ever said anything nice about us online or recommended us to anyone. Uh, Yeah, really appreciate that. Thank you very much. My name's Al Needham and I have ears like another world of their own. Sharp music. Hi, Smash Hits readers. We wish you a Merry Christmas on behalf of Errol, Ashley, and Peterson. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.